0: Restaurant Unstoppable episode nine hundred and three
1: with Matt Rolfe. And I think the, the only person in my belief and our both of our ways of achieving our visions for what we want from this industry is us. What's our limiting beliefs? So I think a real freeing exercise is to write down positive and challenging thoughts and try to say what's the factor truth around it. Are you ready for it factors? Success stories.
0: Failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge. Then join Eric Cacciatori in and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. And who likes data entry? No one. So you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with Margin Edge. They will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail. Don't worry about tech integration either because Margin Edge allows you to seamlessly connect your POS and accounting systems and get a daily. P and L and on top of all of this margin edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes. Plus, you can compare actual costs versus theoretical cost. Head to MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for 30 days, no contract, no setup fee. Plus, you'll get free unlimited training and support. That's MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy, a company you've been hearing me reference a lot on the show lately, and that's because they're awesome. And I want to make sure you know about some new e-learning courses they have available right now. Diageo Bar Academy is always free with Tons of resources that can help you build your skills at your own pace and at any level. So these courses I'm talking about, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness Essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, you'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pint every time. Learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant leans more towards the spirits, then make sure you take the interactive course on spirits and food pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate their dining experience, and help you improve your check averages. To learn more about what Diageo Bar Academy has to offer to grow your career, visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Now, I know you know about plate IQ, but do you know about PlateIQ's new spend management feature? Okay, let me tell you about it. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there's no credit check, no minimum bank balance, and no personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees, but cannot get a corporate credit card issued Easily, and I've got to tell you that with Plate IQ Card, you can get up to one percent cash back. And you cannot forget that Plate IQ still offers bill pay, incredible insights, and custom approval workflows. To learn more, head to plateiq.com/unstoppable. And when you use that link, you can save twenty five percent off implementation. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder of Results Hospitality, West Shore Hospitality Group, and Matt Rolfe Hospitality Leadership Coaching. Matt Rolf, and I should also say the author of You Can't Do It Alone, uh, Focusing on People to Scale, Develop, and Lead Your Restaurants. Matt Rolfe, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today?
1: Absolutely. Excited. Excited to be here feeling unstoppable. Let's go.
0: Yeah, man. I'm feeling unstoppable. I loved this book so much. I love when I read books that reinforce a lot of the things I've learned organically over 900 episodes because I'm I'm at this point because I started this podcast as a student. I never made the claim that I'm the expert, but I'm starting to really form strong opinions and I'm not really confident in those opinions yet. But when I... When I read people who feel confident enough to put their thoughts into a book and it reinforces my sentiments, man, it gets me excited. And this book hit some veins with me. You really did reinforce a lot of what I feel inside. So I can't wait to get into this and to share your story. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us?
1: Yeah. One that's really landed for me recently is you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So as a leader in the industry, as a coach and as somebody who interacts with leaders all day, every day, if we're not grounded ourselves, we leave ourselves exposed to be at service of others, but end up empty, burnt out exhausted. Yeah, we man. can all relate. So yeah. self-care first.
0: I love that. And uh, you definitely, it's one of the, I think it's the second to last chapter in the book. Um, and I love that you focus on that. And if that's one of the big lessons that I've learned in the show as well is that, listen, like g- growth comes from the inside out. Um, yeah. So when you're thinking of your restaurant, it comes with, you know, working on your people and then that overflows into your guests and the experience. But that all starts with you. You know, yeah. you can't lead, you can't influence, you can't sway people unless you've been able to sway yourself and improve yourself first. Cause you got to, you know, it, it, if, and I think that's the inside is you yeah. out, right? What, what's going through your mind as I say this?
1: Yeah. I think about, you know, your core beliefs. So we've all gone through trauma over the last couple of years with the pandemic yeah. and just checking in with ourselves, like, where are we at? So there's this fierce fight that we have to recover. We have to rebuild. We have to make it. And we did. Um, but where are you at? personally, how clear are you on what you want for yourself, for your business, for your team, for your building or multiple buildings, if you have multiple restaurants, how clear is that now that we're starting to come out the other side, hopefully. And I yeah. think we're there. Yeah. Um, Don't jinx it, Matt. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I just, I said some stuff on some, some podcasts 18 months ago and Hey, we're good. We're through this and we weren't. So it's just hopeful uh, glass half full or hopefully overflowing now, but right. just, yeah. Check it in myself. I love it.
0: Um, great way to get this thing started, dude. I'm really excited to kind of dive deeper into your ethos, your beliefs, your values, your, your knowledge. But let's just kind of start with where it makes sense. Where, where does yeah. it make sense to share to start sharing your story?
1: Yeah, I think I always tell a little bit of a story up front of how I found hospitality because it is important to me. So I was someone who in public school and high school was diagnosed with a learning disability. And as I got to high school, I just have this pivotal moment that that really... Started to put me in a direction to be in this podcast with you right now, where I was told by a guidance counselor I wouldn't graduate high school. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to make it, and you should find what he class as alternative employment. And what that meant was go get a trade worker's job. So I think it's go be a roofer, go work construction, go hold the sign. Nothing wrong with those jobs, but the way that they positioned it didn't work for me. And I ended up finding the restaurant industry where I got a chance to go in, you know, work low level jobs, but had people who didn't judge me in a restaurant for how I learned in school, who didn't judge me for, you know, tags that had been put on me since I was in grade one. And I fell in love with the industry. And, you know, from that point, it was home. You know, I worked in low-level jobs in restaurants, worked in the bar in college, and my journey started working for Bacardi, then Anheuser-Busch, and fast-track 15 years later as an entrepreneur. Here we are coaching some of the top leaders in the industry trying to help them strengthen their business.
0: Man, I love how you just kind of cruise at 30,000 feet and gave me the big picture. That helps so much. But going back, um, right. what was your learning disability?
1: Because um, it, it wasn't diagnosed. Or what but, is, I should say. Yeah, what it, what I feel, and we all say ADHD or, or just with that, it was just ADD. Um, I just had an inability to focus. So I yep. grew up in a family that had a lot of trauma and turbulence around it. Um, and I went through a great book, uh, Oprah and Dr. Perry wrote it called What Happened to You. Um, and it just basically shared in the book, which was really positive for me, that the school system didn't know, they weren't coached, the teachers were supported on how to manage certain kids who had traumatic stuff going around them at home. So whether it was a learning disability, energy, I didn't know how to focus on but I essentially go to school and couldn't focus, couldn't contain myself and get put in a small classroom for a holding tank. Um, As you get to high school, that small class, still the same small class, but.
0: I mean, I'm totally resonating with your story. I mean, I'm I'm one of these kids that kind of grew up in that same. I I had a great home life, so I was fortunate to have that. So that doesn't parallel, but. ADHD, color blindness, dyslexia. You know, yeah. I know what it's, what it's like to go through a standard school system and not be standard. Yeah, you know, and I think this industry attracts a lot of people like us with learning disabilities because yeah. I think. People who gravitate towards the hospitality industry tend to be more social, emotional intelligent versus, you know, IQ. It's EQ over IQ, right, generally speaking. Um, And I don't think the standard school system really appreciates that type of intelligence. It wasn't designed for that type type of intelligence. What's going through? Is this kind of resonating with how you felt?
1: Yeah, how I felt going in is it just, you know, I've seen as an entrepreneur, and even with yourself, how many incredible entrepreneurs and leaders that have, that are dyslexic. Yeah. Um, and you find, and it wasn't something that, you know, many kids that I grew up with had it. They wasn't even, they didn't know how to diagnose it. Yeah. So they just, you know, we couldn't read or couldn't do certain, couldn't write and yeah. things. But as I get a chance to meet a lot of entrepreneurs, sometimes these disabilities and air quotes turn into be superpowers because it creates this scrappiness and this fight. and. Yes. You know whether home life might happen to be you know, traumatic. Other I, said, I think that's just a variable of uh, that's there. But how do we take our experiences and where do we put the energy so we can retract or we can move forward? You charge forward, right? Yeah. Look what you're what you're doing, right? So I, my learning disability, I wouldn't take it away for the world. It created who I am. I wish I could have done a couple things differently. Uh, yeah. But. Well,
0: one of the big lessons I've learned of this, this podcast is there is no such thing as standard, no. right? And I think that's a lot of what gets this industry in trouble is we we come up through a, a restaurateur who teaches us the, the standard way of doing business in the restaurant industry. And we're all kind of rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. This is what my boss taught me before his boss taught him, before his boss taught him. And since, go all the way back to like 1905. And we've been doing the same stuff over and over and over again, the standards. Um, but there is no standards and the the connection I'm trying to make is with people like we go through a standard school system right yeah but people aren't standard and we're just starting to realize that like we, we put these labels on things and I think it's in not accepting those labels where you really start to kind of just go well screw that yeah you know Um. so you, you mentioned trauma Uh. yeah is it cool to talk about that? Yeah, is that yeah. something so yeah, kind absolutely. of. I mean, the the point of the show is to be inspirational to show people that you can come from different backgrounds and still be at the top yeah. if you want it bad enough. So, what was that trauma that you had to overcome?
1: Yeah, I think there's a bunch of like moments, and I've my therapists um, think I'm putting their kids through college, so and I don't, <laughs> and I don't mind because it's worth it. But at the age of two, my mom left in the middle of the night. Um and I didn't find out till recently because our family didn't talk about any of this stuff. She didn't come back for five years. Wow. So there was this period of time, you know, where I had a a single dad uh raising two young boys in the 80s, which just wasn't common. Um and it created a bunch of you know, there just wasn't he wasn't around much. He was an entrepreneur, so yeah. this whole situation of trying to raise yourself inside a household. My brother's ten years older. Um then a little bit later my dad went to jail. Um so that experience of and my dad's a wonderful guy. It was something that happened well before I was born, but it came back to haunt you as stuff. Yeah. Can to try not to swear on the show if that's okay. But that experience of, uh, it you was a are very allowed to swear on the
0: show. The yeah. Way.
1: It was just one of those things. Like for <laughs> me, like, um, I have one thing I'm working on as a leader is I have abandonment issues. So mom left, then dad goes to jail. Um, dad comes home back and forth between, um, when my mom was back, back and forth between my parents Houses, but it's the the trauma was um, being alone a lot. People you care about and love leave. Um, but what I learned through that trauma is we can what we go through, we can uh, recreate. So I started on a pattern of recreating these circumstances with friends and girlfriends, where I would almost create an environment where um, I expected people to leave, so they did. Um, and that's kind of what I'm working on now. And I think as you go through trauma. Um, what I've learned is once you go through an experience, you make meaning of it as a human, we make meaning out of everything that happens to us all day, every day. So these events happen and I made meaning that wasn't necessarily true.
0: It was your truth in that moment. Correct. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And as I do the therapy and work with, you know, this is our going back even to our restaurant industry now, right? People made meaning of the pandemic. Did it really happen? Like, was it, was it, we feel our truth, But if we can step, like you said, 30,000 feet up from it and look down at it, what really occurred? So my challenge as a young kid was the stories I made up were protecting me, but they weren't necessarily true fully, meaning I wasn't alone. I did have support. Um, growing up with a learning disability, my story was, I was stupid. So I spent all my time trying still to today. I'll try to prove to you at times of this podcast that I'm not stupid.
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, this, this, this resonates again with my story. I can definitely feel like when you're and I think what you mentioned earlier is like you're, you're in this classroom. like, you know, you're going through your, your, morning routine in the classroom and the, a curriculum comes up and these groups of kids have to leave the room now to go study over yeah. here alone. Like when you're a kid, like you might not fully understand what's happening, but when you're isolated and pulled out and like, you definitely start to believe what people tell you. And I know the school system's intention isn't to go look at you bunch of dummies, get out of here. Like you're destined mm-hmm. for failure. They, they're trying to give you the help you need to learn the way you're trying to learn or the way you can learn. Yeah. But that action of, of isolating a group of people and bringing them away definitely gives you uh, what's the word? Um, the, uh, the words escaping, but you, uh, you, you create an image of yourself uh, yeah. and you start to believe it, yep. you know? And I, I'm the reason why I'm going deep into this. Cause I feel like a lot of people who are listening are probably also like shaking their head. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Like this is something I resonate with. Don't fall into the, what you know, your own self, deprecation is that yeah like don't let your don't know, get over that shit move on like recognize that you are more than that
1: and we and i've done this work myself so it's not about doing it with others but to sit down and there's an exercise i go through often and i go through with my clients we did it at a large conference last week which was a little bit different for to do it in front of 150 people but we have repeating stories or thoughts in our head so what we call single storylines. so for example i'm stupid and so we have this just simple one-page worksheet and just write down what are these thoughts that go on in our head? And then the second part of the process is what's the fact or truth that supports it? So when I have to write down, I am stupid. Um, and I beside to say, what's the facts that support it? It kind of isolates that it's not, not true. Yeah. So the side of just, you know, I'm looking at what are my repeating thoughts and are they serving me or are they not? And I think the hardest people on us are is us like we we wouldn't talk to a stranger the way we talk to ourselves in our own head, yeah. And I think the the only person in my belief and our both of our ways of achieving our visions for what we want from this industry is us. What's our limiting beliefs? Mm-hmm. So I think a real freeing exercise is to write down positive and and challenging thoughts and try to say what's the fact or truth around it. Yeah, because it for me it it set me free. This workshop we did last week we had like five or. 10 people that have messaged since that have just said I had a breakthrough by sitting and, and isolating three thoughts that have been repeating in our minds for a couple of years, a decade or you know, since we can remember. So I think the side note is we all have you know limiting beliefs. We all have things that get in the way, but how do we spend, take a little bit of time to check in? Some are true for sure. Yeah. And some aren't.
0: You just you kind of just uh, that thing said some of it's true the, the your beliefs about yourself because there is a level of self awareness right where we it's important to be self aware and sometimes I think it's it is good to be self aware of your weaknesses yeah um so we're, how do you find that balance of like accepting that what you feel about yourself is true and how do you decipher between what is a self limiting belief that's not true and what is true.
1: Yeah, I so part of it is my own process and then having a support network around you that'll be candid and honest enough um to share truth. So one of my favorite books is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. love it. I know I get I get shit for it now cuz it's I haven't read that in a few years, but it's just dated. Like I, I handed it to a group recently. of It's a great book. It's though. an incredible book. To some of the language is, is, is a bit dated, but one of the exercises in there is see yourself as other people see you. Yeah. Um, so the side of what I would do is, you know, if we were sitting with a group of leaders or Sam and Eliza are outside sitting with my team, is here's how I see myself. And there's an exercise in that book that allows you to go and see how other people see you. Because I think it's a contrast. Often, others can see so much in us, so much power, uh, so much potential, so much drive. But based on what we're dealing with on a daily basis ourselves, we don't see it in ourselves. I'm sure you've sat across from somebody in your podcast and looked at, say, this person's unstoppable. But they're actually the ones that are holding themselves back a bit.
0: Well, you know, you're... Like you're reinforcing, you did it in the book, and now you're doing it in this conversation, reinforcing reinforcing some of my major lessons. And um, what you're reinforcing right now is this mentality. When I talk to people and I say, you know, how when did you know this was your path? When did you know this was going to be what you wanted to do? Yeah, you'd be so surprised at how many times that origin story goes back to a mentor or a grown up or somebody that you look up to and you you know you admire who says you're good at this. Yeah, you know, and and as uh, somebody who's young coming up into this world pay attention to what people are telling you because mm. we don't really develop self-awareness until we're like in our late 20s early 30s when that pre- that prefrontal cortex is fully developed the, the the peak of emotional intelligence is self-awareness it takes time to get that so you got to listen to what other people are saying about you the universe will give you clues mm. if you pay attention you yeah. listen and it, it reinforces what you're saying see yourself the way other people see you I've just never heard it put that way but yeah. it's so great
1: Um yeah, like, like, and I can remember the moment when somebody looked at me. Like, he became my first business partner. He was a client when I worked for Anheuser Busch, and he looked me in the eyes for the first time and said, "I see so much in you, and I believe in you." Like, and it's like I was pretty scrappy and rough back then, and but and I wasn't an emotional person I am now. But literally, tears. No one had ever said that to me, yeah. and it was early twenties. But I, I, and I'm that's not true.
0: Was that I, was that the pivotal moment for you? Was. Where you see? Yeah, it was it's it's, so. It's powerful. a moment in
1: time. I could see it in my. mind. I could see. it. it I know what time of day it was. I know what's around me. I have the full experience. It's crystallized in my mind. And
0: whenever this happens, I have to pause to tell
1: our listeners, if you are in a leadership
0: position and you see somebody who's good at something, yeah. it is your responsibility. It is your duty to let them know because they might not be aware of it because you're just so unself-aware at that point in your life. Young people just don't have that self-awareness. They Their awareness comes from the the hints the universe gives them. Be the hint. reinforce that. And you can literally set somebody on a life. You can change someone's life in that moment of just recognizing them.
1: I That is what we talk about, core beliefs. That's one of mine. So I feel like recognition is free. It's something we feel every day. We don't often share as much as we feel it. Friends, family, coworkers, clients, whoever it is. But it is my my drive every day when I see great behavior, yeah. to recognize great behavior when it happens rather than to give somebody shit for something they didn't yeah. do.
0: I think this cuts deep, man. I think, and I know from reading your book and learning a little bit about you, really what your passion is, is human behavior, studying the human yeah. factor in life. And I think that that is the key. The more we learn about who we are and what we are as human beings, the way we got to where we are today, bioevolutionarily, like understanding the, 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 just the way we're built yeah. and function. I think this idea of um, we're tribal, right? So this yeah. idea of people saying and reinforcing what we're good at, it just, it just makes sense because you, how else would you have known like 10,000 years ago? Like it's it's the the reaction. We're constantly tuned into the reaction of people around us and what we're doing and how what we're doing influences their happiness, right? And yeah. if we're doing something good and, and people, our, our tribe members recognize that, yeah, they're gonna react a certain way. I think this is a big part of our evolution is just being seen and recognized.
1: That's powerful, there, right? Because if you look out, you know how, you know how we've evolved. Yeah. But where we're not used to recognition, like it's not necessarily culturally common, um, where we're looking at the positive and people around us. Some of us are. Yeah. But I don't think we're. I don't think the average leader out there. Um, average, not great, but average is going around recognizing people as much as, as they feel it. And one of the breakthroughs I had uh, during the pandemic, uh, was going through James clear, clear's book, atomic habits. Yes. So he, and one thing that he shared, I've gone through a bunch of other habit books recently. And he said, the only way that our brain is able to process is through positive recognition in the direction of what we want. The brain can't actually process. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's a negative result. And that's, this is in the research of so where we, act, if we want to build better habits, better behaviors in ourselves or in the people around us, the, and this is many experts, I'm not an expert in the field, but trying to study it and habit change and behavior change is we need to recognize the positive pattern, the positive behavior. Um, and my, I, I consistently for five, 10 years, starting as an entrepreneur focused on what the gap was. What didn't I do? Where didn't I get to? How? You know, what goal was I short on? Rather than recognizing we hit two out of our three goals, knocked him out of the park, and fell shortly uh, fell short on one. But how do we focus on the great progress we're making on a daily basis, not focusing on beating the crap out of ourselves for for what we didn't do?
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that we're all uh, entrepreneurs all fall guilty of that to some degree. I I definitely do myself. Yeah. I'm always looking to the future of what I'm where I'm trying to go. And sometimes you lose sight of what you, how far you've come, yep. right? And it's important to stop and to like kind of bask in that a little bit and like celebrate your wins because what's what's it all worth? You know what's it all for, right? Yep. Um, I'm loving the conversation. So you have this. So you, you go through the school system. You're constantly being told you're not going to make it. Like you should go get into the, the trades and you know seek alternate sources of I don't know career paths. Uh, and then you have this boss, Anheuser Busch, mm-hmm. who says, "I see something in
1: you." Yeah. To
0: take it to that point, how did you find yourself at in the in the first place
1: um yeah there's um I was working at a summer summer job we were running uh beach volleyball leagues out of at a golf course mm-hmm. this just yeah, just to put it back so this terrible sand and this terrible golf course, and this the this the company here is called the bat, so this van pulls up. And I'm like, what's that person? You know, Brandon, I know the beer company. I'm 19 or 16 or whatever age I was. And I see this and I'm like, what is that person doing? I can see how happy they were. And, you know, as a young person looking at the beer industry, looked fun and exciting. And just in that moment, I decided from seeing, meeting this person, and I actually reconnected with him last week at a conference. He was speaking there as well, which was so strange. But I saw this person, met him, loved his energy and said, I want to do that. Um, So that's how I found Labatt ended up uh, through college becoming a summer rep and, and meeting and there's really high standards in these beer companies um, you know they taught me accountability um, they taught me belief in myself uh, and my boss there he just he said hey I'm picking you he's like I you know every incentive every opportunity every bonus he said you need to be first so there's like 90 people on the team and I responded to his his aggressive leadership he was very positive but he was uh, almost like a brother or fatherly figure for me yeah. is this the same
0: guy who said that I see something in it's
1: it? it's uh it's a next yeah the next that was my first business partner but brent he just pushed me in a different way um, which was um, it was amazing for me because that I really see what was my potential right how did I get out of my own way and for somebody to say I want you to be number one or number two out of the entire sales force I was like all right I'll take Do you
0: talk to everybody like this to hype them up to get them to that point where they're all he, like he's saying like yeah. Or
1: is it, did he
0: truly see something in you and thought that you could do it?
1: Um, it's good. My interpretation, because he was a mentor of mine for years, even after I left Labat, his name's Brent Quatermain. He's an incredible human being. And what I think I learned from Brent was it Brent? Brent. Yeah. Brent, Brent Quatermain um, is that he had leadership range. So I think as a young entrepreneur, I was one gear. It was intensity all the time. I think what Brent was able to do is identify what was the personality type of the people on his team and how did he get the most from them? Mm. So we have different gears, whether it's five gears or 10 gears, but he had different abilities to get the most from those around him. I do feel, because we stay connected, that he believed in me. Uh, he also gave me opportunities to grow throughout the company. Um, but I, I think he just had this incredible talent to step back and see the person and not just what he wanted from the person, but how do you inspire them to get the most from themselves? And in turn, obviously, he got returns on my effort, um, but he found my leverage. You know, one of my big mentors is Tony Robbins, and he talks about positive leverage. Often when we talk about leverage, it's negative, right? I'm going to leverage something over you. But as a coach, if, if learning this from Brent twenty years ago, if I can find positive leverage, something that motivates somebody, I can really get them to change, and yeah. that's what Brent did with me.
0: Yeah. So what I'm really hearing is like first seek to understand, then seek to be understood. Yeah. S- stop, yeah. listen, absorb, watch, learn that subject, that person. They'll tell you exactly what you need to know. Uh, to, I think what uh positive leverage. Yeah. To, to get they'll give you the information, the knowledge you need, the data you need. Yeah to leverage that relationship. So when he, what, what is it that he told you that he, he saw in you that, you that you could be number one? What did he bring to your attention about yourself?
1: Um, ability to connect. Um, so I think one thing that I learned from him as a mentor is at, at that time, a lot of things were moving to technology and we had all these new laptops and handhelds and tracking notes. And he just pulled me aside and said, hey, like all this fancy stuff around you is great, but your strength is connecting with people. Mm. Um, so this is why, you know, the past starts me to becoming a coach, right? So, um, he said the ability to listen, be present. I care about you. Um, one thing I'm not here in this conversation for myself today, we had a great conversation. I deeply and care about our industry. I feel we need more. We need more support, more information. And what I love about what you're doing is that tribe side if we collectively commit. Um, but I think that was what was seen as just the opportunity of, of what was possible.
0: Yeah. Um, I love that. And, I mean, again, I think that is such an undervalued element of people who kind of get kicked to the curb in the traditional school system who yeah. tend to be more EQ over IQ. That EQ serves you so much deeper in business going forward. It's all about relationships. Yeah. if and, and that level of emotional intelligence EQ to just be able to understand other people and to see yeah. other people. And to connect with other people yeah. is so powerful. And I don't think we really learn about that, or at least in the eighties and nineties, we didn't learn about that no. in elementary school. No, you know, elementary school <laughs> high school, no. It was, but they're getting into yeah. it today, which is really fascinating. They do yeah. they do meditation, they 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 teach all this stuff, which I think is good. I think they're making strides. Um super powerful stuff. So he teaches you that he makes you self aware of your ability to connect with other people yeah. and to leverage those relationships. Um and to help you understand that it's about connection. How did you progress within uh, Labatt? Was it Labatt?
1: Yeah, Labatt. So it's, so, yeah. oh, my, it has your So just for the audience, they'll, they'll know more the, the A, B name. But um, that is got a chance to, you know, continue to achieve. And then you get new jobs and move to different territories. And that created the opportunity for me to, you know, I met uh, one of my clients who became a, a partner of Labatt. Uh, ended up becoming my first business partner. So how I progressed is actually progressed by way out of the company. So I had somebody, it's kind of like the Steve Jobs story. I didn't know the Steve Jobs story at the time, but he came and said, hey, uh, this person who became my first business partner, Kid Andrew, he said, uh, selling beer is great, but are you going to sell you know, bubbly liquid for the rest of your life? Kind of like Steve Jobs saying to the the Pep, incoming Pepsi CEO, CEO are you going to sell fizzy water for the rest of your life? He said, "Or do you really want to change, you know, help change people, change their businesses?" And and how I developed was, you know, as a twenty-something-year-old selling beer, you know, lots of budget, lots of fun, lots of trips. It was great, but it didn't serve my purpose. The you other, know, I didn't see, you know, selling more beer or moving to marketing. Um, what I really wanted to do was help people. And basically, how you know, how I progressed through the bat was getting to the point where I saw an opportunity to be more impactful outside of the beer industry.
0: So. We kind of skipped over Bacardi. Did you go sure. from the bat to the Cardi or Bacardi? To Bacardi the to the bat. Bacardi was,
1: okay. um, yeah, it was a, a summer job that I got. And two weeks in, um, my boss got promoted to a job on the West Coast. So as, as a 19-year-old, I was left with the the Northern Ontario Territory to manage for for five months Um, So that was just a a wonderful experience. Had no idea what I was doing. Um, Just ran, ran, ran. You know, did more work than anybody around me, and saw some really good results. That that opened up um, my belief in my sales ability. And I believe that we're not selling products; we're selling ideas, Mm -hmm. concepts. So Mm -hmm. we really sell the idea around a product. Um, But really, the Bacardi experience was just about confidence for me. You know, I'm naturally introverted. I'm naturally shy. Um, but what sales did for me, and we're all, like I said, we're all selling ideas. It just gave me confidence to continue to share, to continue to be confident, engaging. Um, and the Bacardi experience went from summer job to back to school and then full time with the bet. Got it. So
0: fast forward, um, yep. your first business partner, Kid Andrews. Yeah. Uh, he says, I see something new. Do you want to sell you know, beer or do you want to sell something that matters? I mean, yeah. not really. yeah. And for you, what matters was the ability to change somebody's life.
1: Yeah. The challenge that I saw at Labatt was I had all of these clients there in the top, my top 10 sales list for my district or my territory. But when I got a chance to, to meet these people, and usually it was sitting in the back office of a pub somewhere. And they had a drink in their hand and a smoke in the in the other hand. And you could tell that they've been drinking and you could see like although they were selling all my beer and the restaurants were busy, something was missing in the back end. You know, they were talking about um, you know, divorce, bankruptcy, you know, challenge. So it just it didn't make sense for me. How could all the suppliers be making such great money or selling so much product while the operator is not profitable. Yeah. So that, that's what's the big shift for should, me that I'm like, this doesn't make sense. You, and, you
0: just reminded me of the words of Eric Williams, past guest in the show. Uh, the name of his restaurant's escaping me, but he's a, a executive chef of Chicago. Um, and when I interviewed him, we we're talking about this and it's, it's a real issue with our industry and something that I think we really need to be much more aware of and mindful of is yeah. that we are not the beneficiaries of our hard work the restaurant industry brings so much opportunity to so many other verticals yeah. and we are he- and it's all off of our blood sweat and tears if, if this if the food and beverage the hospitality industry didn't exist yeah. these other verticals wouldn't have the opportunities they have i'm talking about you know open table was an example you know in the early 2000s or into the into present they're, I think they've gotten better as far as a company goes but you, see, you saw a third-party delivery yeah. you see it with just people who own real estate who they're selling and renting this real estate to restaurant owners and they're making buku bucks. Yeah. It just like, we don't own our assets. We don't, we're not the beneficiary. Like what do we need to do to change that? The restaurant industry.
1: Yeah. I think it's just, um, part of it is that one of the conversations I feel is really shifting out coming out of the pandemic. And it's been talked about for a while as we work with a lot of the major beer, food, and and liquor companies as part of our coaching dynamic. But we always talk about win-win partnerships, or Stephen Covey did. You referenced Stephen Covey there a minute ago. Win-win partnerships, something I believe listening to Stephen Covey's tapes years ago, but is it real? And I think coming out of the pandemic, the challenge is when I'm talking to suppliers in their fancy boardrooms, the cost of them for restaurants to continue to turn over is tens and tens of millions, in the US hundreds of millions of dollars because they're investing in in a cycle of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So I think now we're finally starting to look at how do we work together for for scalable and sustainable restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I might be a little bit, we might be in the innovator or early adopter stage, meaning a small percentage of us are focused on this, but I think what needs to change is, you know, when we look at our restaurants and everybody involved me as well, how am I contributing to a return on culture, a return on time, a return on investment? If you're a food company, beer company, liquor company, open table, do we really have a common goal? Or is the goal to sell my shit to you? And when you turn over, I'll sell my stuff to somebody else.
0: Yeah, um, I'm going to. Definitely. I just put a note. Um, we need to change. Uh, so we, we ask all of our, our guests at the end of the show, where, do we, where are we now? Where do we need to be? And uh, we need to create sustainable restaurants. It's something I want to definitely come back to. But I feel like that's later in the conversation. Yeah, sure. yeah. So going back to your story, um, tell me a little bit more about Kid Andrews in the first business now Now's yeah. a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a software platform for restaurant people by restaurant people. To be successful in the modern age, you need to be efficient by streamlining your processes and creating automation. Simply put, Margin Edge means data streamlined and insights automated. With Margin Edge, you can track food and labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment and who likes data entry no one so you'll be thrilled to hear that there's no more data entry with margin edge they will save your team hours and paperwork by automating your invoice processing with line item detail don't worry about the integration either because margin edge allows you to seamlessly connect your pos and accounting systems and get a daily L. on top of all of this margin edge enables you to digitally manage your inventory and recipes plus Plus, you can't compare actual cost versus theoretical cost. Find out why over three thousand one hundred restaurants are thrilled to be using Margin Edge. Head to marginedge.com/unstoppable to sign up for your free demo. And when you use that link, you can try Margin Edge for free for thirty days. There's no contract. There's no setup fee. Plus, you get free unlimited training and support. That's marginedge.com/unstoppable. One more time, marginedge.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and I'm loving the conversation. You were just starting to tell us about your first venture, your first business that you owned. Uh, One of your mentors, Kid Andrews, saw something in you. Take us back to that dialogue of where he says, you know, do you want to be selling beer or do you want to be selling something that matters?
1: Yeah. I, I remember like I moved to Ottawa from Toronto, which is about four hours away, and he was based in Toronto. And, and we just continued to have dialogue on the phone, and he was just challenging me whether I was to go work with him, uh, for him, um, or whether I was going to do something else. And he was just saying, hey, you're doing great work, but you know, does it really matter? And I think he shared from a genuine spot, he's a serial entrepreneur, um, you know, Uber successful in different ventures, Bankrupt other ventures, but he he really is probably one of the most inspirational and impactful people on my life to date. And I think, um, you know, in my final days, he'll be somebody that I think of that I'm so grateful to have met him and had his support. And I think one of his talents, similar to Brent Quartermain's, was the ability to see something in young leaders that he could harvest. Um, because he did have multiple young leaders around him in the different businesses. Um, but Kit just. He, he had big dreams. Like for me, he taught me, um, I had a poor relationship with money, um, and the meaning of money and what I felt I could earn. I had, uh, limiting beliefs of what I could achieve. So what I felt I was entitled to, to do or have or build. And he was someone who just through, not through his talk, through his actions, you know, he, he compounded wealth. He took extreme risks in business. Um, but he built it all around people. Yeah, it wasn't. He could buy buildings, but he, the buildings were driven by people.
0: So how you worked with him at Anheuser-Busch? Or the, no, at this Anthony?
1: is what he actually owned a, a group of restaurants. Okay. Uh, so he was a restaurateur. I sold I sold to him. Got it, um, got it, got it, got it. And I And when I left uh, Anheuser-Busch and joined him is when we, we started what's now called results hospitality. Um, and we brought that company, the license agreement or the software. We went into restaurants and helped them increase profitability through third-party inventory. Um, so we go and do the inventory, find losses, and coach the operator on how to close the gap on the losses. Um, Were you, so, what,
0: so you, okay, let me make sure I understand. So your yeah. first business, Results Hospitality, founded yeah. when?
1: Um, founded, we we are f- coming up in 15 years.
0: 15 years. So... Yeah. 2000, I don't know why it mattered. That's in my learning
1: disability. People ask me dates, and I'm like, uh, I know it's almost 15 <laughs> years ago. So. <laughs> um,
0: and so you were, so basically, and this kind of sounds a lot like sculpture hospitality. Is, yep. Were you using
1: sculpture? Um, No, so it's actually Barmetrics is the software. Okay, yep. yep.
0: So you would use a third-party uh, system, yep. and then you'd take that system, and you would implement it in restaurants. And yep. would they pay you weekly to come in and actually do the inventory?
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay. we still. I saw that company today. We we deal with um, a couple hundred of Toronto's top top restaurants. I've got a, a full team and partner who runs that business for me. Um, but yeah, similar to sculpture. Um, Was it
0: just bar inventory or, or all? Of-
1: uh, we did we did get into food. Food's really difficult to do without the chef. Um, I think third party food inventory is, um, in my experience, is inaccurate um, if you don't do it side by side because there's so many variables in a kitchen where there isn't in a bar. Um, just my and I, I personally went through about six months of trying to get that process right. And
0: I, I think I'm a little lost. You said side yeah. by side with, with
1: the chef. Sh- okay. Um, so. Yeah. Just and again, so if we're trying to do a, a kitchen inventory, so we have the fridge, we've got prep products. You know, we, we've got all kind of variables: where the product is, how it's prepped, what stage it's at, and then if we're looking at weights and measurements. Um, if you're, if we don't have the process right with the chef and if you don't go through the inventory with the chef, I think there, you're naturally going to find gaps, yeah. not to say a third party company can't come in us sculpture. There's lots of others, um, that are out there and, and do a good job. It just needs to be verified by the chefs. Cause if not, you're going to find. Uh, different weights and frozen thawed and cooked chicken wings
0: too many variables that are out of control
1: it can be done it's just i think if somebody if you don't know the ins and outs of what happened in the kitchen yesterday you might have some gaps
0: and how many kitchens are exactly the same so as you as somebody who
1: goes into one kitchen (laughs) to
0: figure out how to get it right with this restaurant you go to another kitchen it's like okay we have to build this from the ground up again you know and you have so many it's just it feels like more resistance then is worth the effort or...
1: Yeah, if that's the challenge. You know, food inventory, it, it's absolutely critical and necessary, but are you working towards an intentional and aligned goal, right? So like if I come, if you're a chef and I come into your restaurant, I tell you you're missing 20% of your product and you weren't part of the process, you know, they're going to be like, yeah, get bent, you don't know my restaurant. And, and so that, the liquor inventory is easier. You know, yeah. it's physical product and depletion then that process can be done. There's fewer um,
0: steps from where that, yeah. you know, it comes in in a bottle, and it goes out of the bottle into a glass, and that's it. Yeah. Whereas food, you know, it comes off the truck, it goes into the refrigerator, it gets it gets prepped, and then from there it goes in a holding. From there, it gets an, it added to, you yeah. know, the element of the dish, and then it gets delivered to. The, there's just so many steps where things can go wrong. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what I'm picking up here. Yeah. So um 2007, you started Results Hospitality with Kid. I'm saying is it Kit or Kid? K-I-T, yeah. K-I-T, sorry, K I T. Yeah. K I T. Sorry, I'm calling him K I D. Yeah. Sorry, Kid. <laughs> Kit. Um. So, so. I see where, you know, what he's thinking you, you're, you're part of the, the beverage side of the industry selling libations. Uh, he sees that you're good at it. He sees that you understand that part of the business and he knows that you can go and sell this service to other restaurant Is that your, your role in the business is just doing the sales or were you actually in there doing the inventory as well?
1: Um, yeah, we learned from, I was the first person to use the software, um, in Canada, you know, the Barmetrics is based out of Australia. We call the software run by Barmetrics and for our company still is um, for results hospitality. So we were dialing in through Skype in overnight trying to figure out how to do inventory. So the one thing I loved about that experience as an entrepreneur is I learned every single stage. So yeah. first counting to account management to client presentation, then to sales, then to office expansion, then to franchising um, as we expanded that business. And it was, uh, yeah, it was great. But was, I remember having my uh, freezing in a cold room was my first experiences in the middle of the night So I was still working my other job, right? I was traveling back from Ottawa to, to figure this company out on the weekends and spend all weekend trying to do inventory and get yeah, it right.
0: That's wild. I think there's a lot of opportunity right now um, for restaurant people with third-party services, um, mm-hmm. specifically like Restaurant 365 comes to mind, Toast yep. comes to mind. Yep we are so dependent right now on technology because of the cost of labor going up, Uh, like all these increases in costs. We need to streamline process to get the job done as as cheaply as, or not cheaply as possible, but as, you know, smoothly as possible, efficiently as possible. Um, What advice do you have for somebody who might, like... If you're, using to, if, you're, if you're trying to create a business that hinges off a third-party platform that, where you're basically helping implement this technology because you become an expert in that technology, yeah. what's your advice for setting up a business like that?
1: Yeah, and I've got some pretty strong beliefs on this because I, like, I get contacted, as I'm sure you do, multiple times a week through LinkedIn with somebody who has incredible tech. So they've developed this technology um, and they're trying to figure out how to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're looking, hey, Matt, can you help me sell my stuff? And I said, I wish I could because I'm trying, I'm busy trying to sell my own stuff. Um, But what I I think if you're trying to get a third party system, this goes for a lot of different thought processes. Are you really thinking about what your audience wants and needs? The operator. So the technology works, but we have to get another human being to engage with it and use it properly. And I think if we think about what them and they want and need, um, it'll allow us to implement successfully. The software, the technology, the tools, whatever it is, because all most of the tech I see works. But what the gap is is if the the operator who buys it doesn't buy in or use it properly, it doesn't work, and then the subscription fee drops or they drop your tech. Yeah. Um. So I think this key thing is how, what does execution look like? Mm. How can you partner not on the purchase of the software, but on the result?
0: Yeah. So not just getting it installed and showing them, but yeah. also creating the the habits, the routine yeah. around making sure the checklists are around making sure you're engaging with this technology every day, the way that it's meant to be engaged with.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it sounds simple and obvious, but it's just, we see say POS systems, POS systems usually get installed when a restaurant is opening. Yeah. POS tech comes They're trying to set up their kitchen. They're trying to train their staff. Now we're trading on the POS company, the POS system and the POS trainers gone. Yeah. And they don't. It's overwhelming
0: it, for yeah. a lot. Especially again, the people in this industry no bash on us But we tend to be kind of like you and me, Matt, where we're not really like the most like tech savvy type of people or we're more socially, emotionally intelligent. We're good with people. But when it comes to process and figuring, tinkering, and I don't want to make, I don't want to paint you into a corner if this doesn't sound like you correct me, but I'm definitely not one of those people that like to get, I'm not good in the dirt. I'm not good in the mud. Yeah. As Gary Vaynerchuk would say, or Simon Sinek would say, you're not, um, wait, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk says dirt. In uh, Simon it calls you a, a, a how guy. Sure. Right. I'm a why guy and I'm yep. good in the clouds. And that yep. tends to be a lot of people in the restaurant industry. Yep. So uh, back to the point, if, if you're somebody who's a good technician and you're good at tinkering and you're good at figuring things out, I think there's a ton of opportunity in this industry to become a master in toast, to become a master in restaurant 365 yep. Yep. and just have clients where you're there helping them out. How many clients would
1: you need? Not mm-hmm. me
0: like 10 at what, what could you charge to be an on call tech support for a restaurant? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, and then we played with this model a lot. So one thing I worked through with my coach, um, and to the barmetrics team listing is how do you be software agnostic? Like I don't care if the software is Barmetrics, if it's sculpture, if it's open table, like whatever we're doing to optimize. So how like if you're somebody out there looking to support the industry and you study toast, you study seven shifts optimization, and you could put a very you can put a basic um, induction price on something. So I'm gonna two grand to come in and properly set you up, or five grand to set you up. Um, and just did that because most of these tech companies, their their design is not that level of engaged support. Not all of them, but most aren't looking to sell products. That's where product they fall to.
0: short is customer yep. support. And there's so much demand right now. And so many people making technological changes in yep. their business because they have to yeah. that... The, these industries are overwhelmed with the, the amount of support that's demanded from them. Yeah, there's so much opportunity here. I think we could talk about this forever, but let's move forward. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, two thousand seven, you, you start Results Hospitality. How long are you humming along with that before you start your next project? And what was your next project?
1: Yeah, the next. Um, so I worked on Results Hospitality and expanding that brand in our offices for I think six seven years. Um, and we did move from expanding offices. Then we started coaching and speaking. And that's where the divide for me happened. So I saw, I looked at myself and realized, opened my eyes one day and say, I own a company that I can call it whatever I want. Essentially it inventory. I'll be honest on this. I have no interest in inventory. Don't like inventory. <laughs> I like the result. I like to help my clients. But what I, what I said, and it was kind of this uh, breakthrough for me is what am I really doing here? we were taking data, coaching people on how to behave different in their restaurants to get a different result. But what I really fell in love with was the people in the industry, the behaviors. So we, we divided the companies, um, so one would continue to focus on profit enhancement, and I set up a team that would run that company. Um, different personalities, they're more detailed, more analytical, more in the mud, in your words, they're better to run it. I was a little too emotional to be running an inventory company, as you could imagine. Uh, Then I shifted over to coaching. So really, how can we coach the leaders to get their people right inside the restaurant? So um, the results hospitality business was amazing. I loved it. It served me for a long time. It still does today. But my passion, I I stopped and said, I want to be more affecting more critical change through people and behavior in the restaurant than the product in the restaurant.
0: Yeah. And that's, I lean that direction too. That's what really, it's a human factors, a human element yeah. that really excites me as well. So I can get, I can get behind that. So was this the, the creation of West shore hospitality? Yeah. And yeah. that was focused on the coach, not the coaching, but the, the human variables, the profit side of things.
1: Um, well, West shore was, the, was the coaching side. It was the first version of, of our coaching brand. Um, the West, West shore is, as we fought for names was, um, how I
0: assumed g- you were in California when I
1: saw that. <laughs> yeah, I, like, oh, I, I grew up in you. West Shore about two hours. It's this, <laughs> It's this. Uh, excuse me, anybody who lives there, it's this pretty average neighborhood that I grew up in. And what my coach that I was working with at the time said, one of the things for me as I became a coach is be me, don't try to be somebody else. Um, so the naming the company West Shore um, just reminded me how I grew up, stay scrappy, stay real. Um, don't try to become some polished speaker or coach coach. Um, which was something I thought I needed to do at the time. So uh, we launched West Shore Hospitality Group and we started doing uh, strategy sessions, uh, conference speaking, one-on-one coaching. And it was way more successful than I expected out of the gate. I didn't see how big the opportunity was.
0: This is 2012, 2013? Yeah. About five years ago? Yeah. Okay. Um, So diving into this... um, you said that you, you were more passionate about the human element side of things, the human variables and profitability. What what made you, what made you realize this is what you like, this is what your strength is? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, to start to see what my strength was, the ability to, to allow people to see their path forward. So I think as a coach, and I think there's a huge difference between a consultant and a coach, and one's not better than the other, but a consultant is paid to come in and give the answer. So... Mm-hmm. They're, I'm buying your experience. Um, I'm sure you've interviewed hundreds of them who are incredible restaurant experts who are going to come fix your kitchen, fix your marketing, fix your design. The difference with the coach, which um, I really I realized and obviously was working with a coach myself, was my ability was to put people into a situation to create space to have the conversation that needs to be had, to ask the hard question. And I'm not the answer. You know, I'm in this exact room later this afternoon. I'll be with a client. And our goal is to have the conversation for him that needs to be had to move his business forward. And once I started to see that and get comfortable with those conversations, um, I really saw the excitement I got from it, the fulfillment I got, but also the change and the breakthroughs that others had. And the breakthroughs weren't because of me. My job as a coach is to create space. You know, people are their own motivators, their own breakthrough. I don't want to take credit for that, but the ability to create space for people to give them time... um, to focus on what really needs to have their attention because yeah. we can all get lost in ops, right? We so can ops all day, every day, but when
0: you say create space, you're talking about your ability to just engage the, 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 the safe space. Like We're in this room. This is yeah. a space and people feel like you, you have this ability to, to help people get to the core of what they're feeling and what they're doing um, and comfortable enough to talk about these vulnerable states.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's a process to, you know, the coaching that I've learned that works for me, and there's lots of different ways to approach it. But as a coach, my, my job's not necessarily to be liked. Often I need to find out where resistance is and create conflict where resistance is. Um, so where somebody is stuck is where it needs attention, and by creating space, which might be being in this room for five hours later today – is we can make sure to isolate a situation. And what I want to find is what's really in the way for somebody that if we give it attention, if we create change, we'll create a different result. Um, And it's not, you know, I thought before coaching needs to be, I need to motivate you. I could do that all day, every day. We do motivational speeches, but it's not sustainable. So what we really need to do is find out like really where are we at and then how do we build a plan where we, we commit to executing differently consistently that creates a result. It's like going to the gym, right? We could all go to the gym for two weeks and be sore as shit. That's great. But we got to go for 90 days before we see the result.
0: Yeah. So focusing on the human elements to create more profitability, what in the strategy sessions, so you started focusing on strategy to help these people change one element of their life uh, where they're getting held up to go forward differently. What were the, the biggest lessons you learned? Like what were your biggest aha moments as far as like, oh, like, like, you know, like the, the different strategies, the different approaches, the, the, the lessons you were learning that you were passing on to your clients.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, and this is newer language in the last couple of years. I wouldn't have seen it um, this clearly before. But one thing I've learned about some of the most um, powerful, successful leaders I've had a chance to work with is, um, and one of the opportunities is that everybody else had boundaries with them but that they didn't necessarily have boundaries with their people, meaning that we have an open door policy. We'll work weekends to make sure we get stuff done. So the leader's always kind of in overdrive. And one of the things we're stepping back for leaders and the ahas and the breakthroughs are how do we respectfully and properly manage our time in our calendars? Um, so we put time into the areas that need the right attention or time in the areas that move the business forward but how do we create a two-way relationship with our people? And I'll, let me explain. Like for myself, one of my failures is I, I've for, and still to this day struggle with, but I know boundaries with anybody around me. I didn't feel I deserved boundaries. Meaning if somebody asked me to do something, at, last night somebody asked me to turn something around late, before I would have said yes to every request. How do I make sure you're happy? But by making everybody else happy, I ended up burnt out, drained and in a this bad spot. Is the,
0: this is like the hospitality industry. Yeah. Like we are collectively burnt out and drained because we're all doing the same thing. Yeah. It's
1: crazy. And let's go like, even if like to go more to the vulnerable side of that, what's the results of that? So like one thing as someone who's, who's tried to live in our industry, you know, often it leads to unhealthy physical. It leads to our industry surrounded by addiction. I'm somebody who struggled with addiction in my younger age. Um, Cause I didn't know how once I was so busy and burnt out, Rather than shut myself down, I would numb myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's people out there that are listening to this. that just feel, and there's no, I have no judgment. I've worked through addiction myself in support of a lot of other people through it. And then the mental health impact that comes from the addiction.
0: Well, so. I mean, I'm assuming that you, you kind of dealt with abandonment issues as a kid too. Yep. Um, and this is something I kind of, I think a lot of people went through this during the pandemic. They started drinking or using other substances yep. a lot more because we want at the end of the day, you want to feel something, yeah. And we feel most of the most of our feels that we get in the natural world comes from other people, yeah. You know, engaging with other people, whether that's you know romantically or just conversation. But like, yeah. this is feel good stuff. Feel good chemicals come from this. Yeah. And when you're isolated, you don't get any of that good stuff, yeah. That we need. So we a lot of us went to alcohol and other yeah. substances to get to. Get these endorphins to get this; these chemicals that we couldn't get where we would, would normally get them. So, 100%. I guess what I'm saying is, um, as somebody who has issues with relationships, growing up, having trust issues, maybe mm-hmm. I could see you why you'd be more susceptible to going to alcohol. Yeah. To to get that. Yeah, and it was that it, chemical,
1: and I've gone back, and this is part of the work. Right when we open this up you know, to people, you know, why I asked somebody in a retreat recently, why do you, why are you working so hard? So she was giving some resistance towards the exercises. I said, why do you put so many hours in? And she just stopped and she immediately tears rolling down her, her face because, and it making me emotional right now thinking of it because I really care about her and I've worked with her team for a while, but it's just that realization of how are we numbing some of the experiences that we've, that we've gone through. And yeah, my behavior as a kid was, um, you know, I turned to alcohol and drugs, you know, grade seven. Um, and that was just because there was nobody around to stop me and, and the kids are around. And um, it was a coping mechanism. And, you know, going through um, addiction awareness and recovery, you realize, you know, it, it was also um, part of my family tree. Like it went, goes all the way back through. So um, I think it's different for all of us. But what you said most is, you know, we are, you said earlier we're tribal. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we are designed for connection. Human connection is what I am most powerful, most passionate about. And COVID took away connection and community for many of us. And and we all did whatever we had to do to get here. The key thing is what do we need to do to be happy? You know, I have, I have no judgment, but whatever we can do to be happy, um, and what I learned recently is happy are spikes in experiences. And if we can move from happy, how do we truly be joyful? Um, and that's... Really, when we go to the underlying work is how do we find joy in our restaurants yeah. and how do we find joy in our work? Dude, together?
0: you're hitting another chord with me. And I think that this, what you're talking about right now, mm-hmm. is I hope that eventually there's a uh, an awakening among humanity that goes, wait, all we all really want is to be happy. Yeah. You know, that's all humans really want. Yeah. And the, the thing that's really exciting when you think about it is we're not far away from being able to attain that for most people. Yeah. You know, and I think it's just a matter of and that's why I focus so much on the human factors, the human variables, because if we understand what makes people happy, Mm -hmm. then we can give it to them. And what I'm learning is that it's really simple things that make people happy. Yeah. Being seen, being valued, personal growth, like belonging, being loved. Yeah. How hard is it to do that?
1: Yeah. In a restaurant said, "What you just? We have the exact same language in a restaurant. How do we make our people be seen, valued, and heard?"
0: Yeah, this is why I drove yeah. the to freaking Toronto, dude. <laughs> I was like, "I'm not doing a point.
1: remote interview." <laughs> I love too
0: much of what's being shared in this book. I know, like, it, it's just not the same, you know. Yeah. Like Another human variable. Like we we have better engagement when we're n- next to people. You know? Yeah. Anyway, um, so back to these lessons you're learning. What you learned? You learned. Um, I think, and it's it's it comes up really early in the book. Is I think one of the first things you do is you just you look at your your client's calendar. Yeah, you know, like time management. Yeah, um, and and finding like you were talking about boundaries, and we don't have boundaries. So is that what you like when you first sit down with the client? Like, where are your eyes going? Like, what are the things you're looking for? Usually, um, what are the most common things that hold your clients up early on?
1: Yeah, what I'm looking for initially is, um, as a coach, really a lot of what I do is looking at body language. So I'm not an expert in this. I know some people listening to this will be experts in NLP and other processes. But I'm just really looking not necessarily at their words, but what they're holding. Um, because I care. I'm not trying to make judgment that there's um, something wrong, something good. I have to take a neutral stance. But where is somebody really at? I think the key to change, if we're trying to support somebody and change, we have to meet them where they're at. So it's not, I can't want change for you more than you want for yourself, and I can't help you unless I really know where you're at. So the initial stage for me, and I'm a coach who's not for everybody. I, I just am not. I'm for, for a very small um, niche of the market, but I'm trying to see where are they at and what do they really want? So some people, when it comes to, to coaching and change, it's more entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with that. Let's do some motivation. Let's do a yeah. detailed strategic plan. All that stuff's got to be done. But I'm looking for leaders saying like, hey, I'm so close, but it doesn't need to be this effing hard. Like, it's just It just seems harder, or it seems like I'm making too many decisions, or it seems like I'm disconnected from my people. And these will be, in, whether it's an independent restaurant or a multi-site group, um, but the patterns of response are, are fairly common is we're achieving good results. Um, I'm happy with the p and but it just seems so hard and I'm not doing what I love anymore. So I still get to do spend some hours, but before I used to spend all my time training people or I used to spend my time, a uh, chef said to me recently, touching food and I haven't touched food in a while, or I love designing restaurants. And what happens, they become victims of their own success. As you grow, you end up doing what the business needs, not why you yeah. love the industry.
0: It's a classic Emyth story, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're familiar with the book e yeah. he's working uh, with this woman and she wants to make pies and she... Yeah realizes that oh man starting your own pie making company isn't just making pies yeah. it's everything else right yeah. and you get good at that, that everything else but eventually you no longer do the thing that you're passionate about because you have so many other responsibilities so that's actually a really great conversation when you meet somebody who First time client, you're, you're reading their body language, you're looking at their calendar and they say to you, like, like, I'm doing a great job. The numbers are there. We have our P&L locked in. I'm just not happy. Mm-hmm. What's your advice for them at that point?
1: Yeah, I think it's to, to get back to what do they want and why from the business. We've mentioned this, whether it was in our pre-conversation or now or during the podcast is just why are they doing what they're doing? So sometimes we end up becoming part of a machine, whether it's a million dollar, you know, coffee shop or a $250 million restaurant group. We just end up, we end up somewhere and we look up one day and go, how did I get here? I don't even ever done that. I've done that in my career. but holy shit, how did I end up here? Yeah. Um, so decided, it's just going back to what do they really want and what really the shift is um, we want to be at service of our team, of our people. But I, I ask people, are the hours or expectations sustainable? And that's part of the foundation of the book because often the challenge for a leader is they need to get out of their own way because they can't do it alone. They're the ones that are bottlenecking their business. The most senior leaders that I work with and often what I call the hospitality entrepreneurs who I start working with before the team. But in order for the business to move forward, the owner needs to delegate, create clarity and get out of their own way. Let and I go, I speak from I my the
0: t- words you use in the book, right? You yeah. have to let go. And honestly... I'm going through a lot of this right now. Like I don't have a team really. And I shouldn't say that. Like I I do have Jared who does a lot of my editing. So basically I go on the road, I get the content and I throw it behind me. He catches it and then puts it where it's supposed to be and does the copyright and all that stuff. And I wouldn't be able to do what I do without him. And I'm trying to get film crew and videographer and social media. So I shouldn't say I don't have a team. It's happening, but, but this idea of like, Letting go, I feel like I try to control everything. And one of the reasons why I don't have a team is because I'm so afraid to let go and be like, hey, you person that I kind of know and and recognize is better at this thing than I am. I just trust you to do it. But how do you how do you get trust from somebody?
1: Yeah. Um, Right. I, I, I love this. We do a little bit of, of live coaching and it's setting you up, man. I read the book. I know we talk about (laughs) trust. Yeah. (laughs) There's a a lot of foundation of trust. And, and before I get into what we do, you know, that was my same story with the results hospitality business. I stayed as the CEO of that business five years longer than I should have. Yeah. It wasn't my role. So, and it took me five years to get out of my own way before I put James in as the CEO of both companies. And as soon as I did, they had record sales, record profit, and the best culture, yeah. right? And it was just the side of, of letting go. But I think what we have to do at a stage is look at, you know, what do we want from our businesses? So as you look to build your team, what's the benefit if we do expand, if we do trust, if we do create more? And you don't need more, right? I'm sure you've, most of us have our base financial needs met and we're satisfied. So there's got it, we have to create gravity that's working towards a bigger goal in order for us to let go. A leader will not let go unless we, have, we know where we're going next. Yeah. We will, a GM, I see this all the time. We see a GM promoted to a regional director or ops manager. I can guarantee them. with well, those listening right now, I will find them in their restaurants being GMs in the first 90 days because that's what we go back to.
0: Yeah, resort to what's familiar.
1: Yeah, but if we want to change, it's just how do we create gravity that pulls us towards what we want to become, where we want to go? Because um, if not, as, as humans, we will go back to control and what we've already proven. Like that's just the, the neuroscience and not an expert here of our brains. We'll go back to our patterns. So for yourself, if um, what I would do as an exercise is what's the benefit? What could the benefit be if we hired X employee at X amount? What space would the, and again, adding people to your team, this is a big, if you're adding managers, leaders, people to support the growth of your media business, not podcast business, it's about creating space for you, not them. So usually people are talking about, I need a social media manager for a social media manager. If we need a social media manager, it's because they're going to create space, freedom, and time for you to do more of what you're great at, which is this.
0: Yes. So you are literally... So this is... Let me just... I'm just going to try to get some free coaching right here. Like I'm being, I'm being a little selfish <laughs> yeah. with the podcast, yeah, that's, yeah, but I feel this, like it's going to yep. spin value for the listeners. Yeah. So here's where I'm at with Restaurant Unstoppable right now. After COVID-19, yep. all my sponsors pulled out because their restaurants pulled out. They're like, we're not getting paid because we shut our restaurants down. We don't need your services anymore, yeah. right? Everyone yeah. got lean. So all my sponsors are like, we can't sponsor the show and we don't know when things are going to turn back on again. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, how am I going to get paid? I just moved to Texas. You know, yeah. like this is going on in my, my world. I'm like, well, I've always wanted to start a membership. Maybe I can pivot my business to focus on this membership variable that I've always yeah. had. So that's Restaurant Stoppable Network. I do not like engaging with people online. I just don't, you know, like I'm literally the person that will drive nine hours to avoid having to talk to you over zoom. Yep. And that's just the kind of person I am. But my life right now is so consumed by the network and help and doing all these live events where it's, it's digital live events and lots of digital data entry, creating events, copywriting, Mm -hmm. doing all these things I, I don't like to do, but I had to do out of, out of survival when the pandemic hit. Yeah now things are starting to turn around, and I'm allowed to travel again, I'm allowed to go on site, I'm allowed to be around the people I love yeah. to be, but I'm trying to balance this, this network variable of what I have to do. Yeah. Another variable, another element of this is I feel like my I'm a gatekeeper. My mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, and to be this person who has to basically be the judge of character of everybody I come across, say you're worthy of my network in the sense of like I'm trying to protect these people that trust yeah. me. And if I if I bring somebody into the network, it's on me because they're now influencing these people who trust me. And if I bring the wrong person in, then I'm failing. I'm I'm letting my people down. Right. Yep. So like I put all that pressure on myself. Yeah. To 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 but when you talked about this in your book, you have to let go. Yeah like I just have to Tom, well, let me yeah. before I answer what I have to do after reading your book. Tell me what you think I should do.
1: Yeah, I, I think first thing because I think the audience can hear too as you shared, which is the beautiful part and the brilliant part is your how your weight changed. So mm-hmm. even your tone, right? Because we go internal. So when I often watch people when they share, I, they're looking at me, but they're looking at a visual in their mind. So I can see, I can tell you're looking at Texas or you're looking at a yeah. Zoom call you didn't like or, or something like that. I think you should be really proud of yourself to stay with this. To continue to build an industry and to pivot, like it sucked for all of us, man. Like I, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, which I'm not a big. What do you company. Mean stay with this. You, you, you stayed on course. You pivoted your business to build membership, and you continued to drive. Even though sponsors were saying for us, our stuff they might not have been there as much as they were prior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I just from my side is a lot of people. A lot of people that I experience in your game are in it for the short term, not for the long term. Yeah. No Um, disrespect, but I think you're in for, you have purpose. Yeah. And you could share your purpose.
0: Yeah. I think the network has value and it's it's where like, I don't want to let it go because I see that just being such a great place. The purpose to connect my listeners to the tools, services, and people who are being referred to me organically in a safe space. We're here to share knowledge and to help each other out, but I just don't want to be there. Yep. And that sounds like a, such a horrible thing. I'm saying this out loud. I can't believe I'm admitting this out loud on the show. Yep. I But I do think that there's value for people who do want to be there. But I think the, the dialogue I'm having internally is, and I got this from your book, is you just have to let go yep. and trust that the people that you're coming across who are referred to organically, if you give them free range,
1: yep. and you just say, I trust you, have at it. Like, What kind nope. of value would that... Um, you mean the people in the network or the people who join your team? Uh,
0: The people who... Are be- people like you, yep. for example. So my vision for the network is to have people like you who are consultants or coaches and or just thought leaders or tours or the products and services. Like if you recommend um, yep. Spot to me, which I think you did earlier. Was that BevTech or something like that? Yeah, well, the the yeah, there's all kinds of... But yeah. like if you yeah. organically refer and recommend a tool or service to me, yep. I then reach out to that tool and service and say, hey, people are talking about you. Like you're in the circle of trust. Like come share, come... Mm-hmm. Educate us on how to use your tool and to, to use it to our fullest advantage. I yeah. trust you; you will refer to me organically, word yep. of mouth marketing, basically. Yep. So I want to create a marketplace of word of mouth marketing of what's happening on the show. I just don't want to be the one to to manage all those relationships digitally. And I think
1: that that's there's strength in that, right? And and you know, we we this I want is to a- feed the
0: funnel essentially.
1: Yeah. And so I think what we would look back if we were able to, and all leaders listening to this, it's the same design, right? If, if we're doing something that isn't our passion or we're not best at, you know, and so we have this great network, but we know it's not our passion to manage the network. It's what would we need to put in place in order to have somebody else support you in that? So, and I look, um, and again, I've done had a bunch of coaches work with me on the relationship of money. And one of my coaches said, respectfully, um, If you need somebody to support you, you're not going to pay for it. Somebody else is. And people get offended by that statement, but he taught it to me. So, what, how much revenue we need to bring in from subscription model, from suppliers, from whatever it is in order to justify support for you. Um, But I think what happens and that we can come up with those numbers. And then we just, then we need to relentlessly attack so we can put an employee in place who manages the network, does that work and represents your brand properly. But I think what happens for the leader is we won't actually let go. Until and that's the, the gravity comment earlier until we have gravity that's clear in a new direction.
0: So you need that vision, that mission of, of whatever the entity is that you've built. You Mm -hmm. need to have, this is what culture is, right? This is what core values are. This is what vision, this is what mission, this is what purpose, all these statements that we talk about when we're talking about culture. Is that what you mean by the direction of where this thing's going to go?
1: Yeah. I think if we even, we tell you, talked about five-year plans, but we put our, I was, um, Texting with a or messaging with another coach I'm working with, um, one of the top. He's a young president's organization facilitator, one of the top on the planet. Flies around, coaches the top entrepreneurial and, and large scale businesses in the world. His text for me: We're having a meeting next week, and I said, "What do we do to prep?" He said, "Put yourself twelve months out from now, and what are we creating?" Like what is so remarkable that we are both as incredibly busy people going to commit time where we love it. So what when you're 12 months from now, we won't change where we are today. But when you see yourself 12 months from now, what is the Restaurant Unstoppable brand? Where are you? Who's around you? Who are your clients? Who's the network? And if we start there, then we can backfill. But if we, if we don't start, start with, with the end of mine, yeah. Begin with the Another end of mine. St- st- all, Covey. Yeah. All normal stuff Seven right. habits
0: of highly effective people. By the way, we've mentioned this, uh, we've referenced it a few times now. Yeah. Great book.
1: But I think for yourself is that side. It's a, and then in 12 months you want to be here and we all know this stuff, right? But we have to really commit to it. You know, my side, we made, you've seen a couple people outside, right? This is a couple people on my team and a couple people on my team that are on it right now. I can't afford based on our, on our scale. But I can't afford not to if I want to scale.
0: Yeah, it's an investment.
1: Yeah, it's an investment. I and I believe deeply in everybody. You know, we've got just under thirty people on the two teams, but it's from our side. it's I I I've got to make the investment first, and that's part of the forcing function to let go. But what are if you were to let go of the network, what would you step into? This, this. Yeah.
0: So when I started, uh, when I started the network back in twenty twenty, it was I had moved. I had just moved to Austin, Texas. My plan was to move like full time to Austin. Um, and the plan was to, be, I was moving to the center of the country so I could be more places easily. Yeah, yeah. This this is what I was trying to do is to be more focused on being on site and being an on site in person only podcast. Yep. The pandemic obviously hurt that. Um, Now that I can do that again and like this is what gets me out of bed This is what I feel like I was put on this planet to do for some reason I think I have a lot of the 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 traits that you have where I am able to get people to open up and to feel comfortable to create that space where they can be open and vulnerable and honest with me about who they are and how they got to where they are and to Really get those details about what it takes to be successful in this industry And this is literally what gets me out of bed. I spring out of bed when I have an interview. Yeah when I have to like email people all yeah. day and like coordinate and schedule and like that pry myself out of bed for that kind of stuff. You know what I mean?
1: And, and we can find, and my, my breakthrough with this just cause it, it's not, I just didn't get here on my own. I was, I was at an Eric Thomas. So ET, you know, top motivational speaker on YouTube coach in Chicago and Eric Thomas, like this is somebody who claimed I am the top speaker on the planet a few years ago. Um, but he went through this as well. He was the CEO of his company. He was speaking. He was booking, although he had teams around him. And, and ET is one of the most access, uh, accessible people if you go see him speak. You're literally standing in this you know, five people around and he's telling the story. And he said until he got out of his own way, ET's talent is using his voice. All his messages says that now. So his goal now is he's built a team around him. So he is using his voice as much as possible. Nothing else. He's got a CEO. He's got all the support around him. But he didn't, you know, going back 10 years ago, he started this just with a couple people. But your talent, my talent is using my voice. My team knows my job is to be doing this, talking and meeting with clients. If I'm not doing that, I'm not helping people. If I'm not helping people, we're not generating revenue, creating opportunity for our team. But I needed, before, the control side is I thought I was best to review the financials. I thought I was best to do marketing. I can tell you how many click funnels I've messed up trying to get my hands on them. Tens of thousands of dollars in my stupidity (laughs) Um, and all these things I was in the way of. So, really, what my job, my team's job now is to keep me out of stuff and I do what I'm talented at. Yeah. So, and it's, it doesn't need to be an all in. You could. You know, We could get somebody part-time, we could get somebody full-time, but who do we put around you that allows you to do your unique ability? And anybody listening, we're talking about us right now, but I want them to ask themselves this question. Who do you need to, to put around you so you can spend more time in your unique ability, yeah, your core talent? And yeah. if we can do that, there's more joy in that. There's more happiness.
0: So part of letting go, so you can do what you're meant to do so you can focus on your real abilities. You, you list how to get real with yourself in the book. And I I think this is relative. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you talk about building trust as being a big, and that's one thing that I've recognized. I need to be better about, um, you know, this, this idea of trust. What is, how do you build trust is the question I have for you to be able to, to hand something off that you spent the past 10, 10 years of your life building. How do you build that trust?
1: Yeah, I think, and there's, this is a lot of what I'm I'm continuing to study now because it is uh, pretty incredible once you break down the foundation of trust. So Brene Brown has a bunch of work on here.
0: Radical Candor. Uh, and that she's on Radical my list. Do you, you know her by any means? <laughs> I, I wish I feel like I do, <laughs> but, I, but I don't. I'm, I'm I'm willing to drive to her as well. I think she's yeah. on the West Coast. So she is. I would love to get her on the show.
1: Yes, it, I think it's Kim Scott. She's um absolutely incredible book that I didn't open because I didn't like the title. I thought it was going to be, hey, let's yell at people more. But just... Um, Absolute incredible stuff. Charles Feltman is who Brene Brown builds her work off of. But I think the foundation of trust for me. So part of it is less how do they trust us? How do we trust to let go is are we in a position to create clarity of expectation? And what can we communicate honestly once we start to transfer? So what often happens in my experience is we, we give something to somebody to take over, take over scheduling for you. Um, but we don't supply, as Brene Brown says, or Tony Robbins, clear is kind, clarity is power, the clear expectation. So they do a job and they think they've done it well. We look at it on Tuesday night and go, ah, I'm actually going to change it on my own. But we don't, of course, as Radical Candor says, then we don't supply the feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So I think if we're going to build trust, it's a two-way, ongoing, consistent conversation. So our team has calls daily, um, and I'm building trust with Sam and Eliza, who are here today that, that you met, right. But the only way we build trust is by back and forth communication. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. I really appreciate what you did here, but here's the map. I'll be honest. We've had a couple days of uncomfortableness in the office because we haven't been in alignment of what the outcome is. But I'm not going to let that stew. We got, we had to stop everything yesterday and go. Okay, what's the outcome for the client?
0: This is where that that, that mentality of constant gentle pressure comes in, yep. right? Where it's yep. like you're not correcting the person, you're correcting the process. Yep. You know, and, you, and I think by saying this is, you know, this is my intention. This is where I'm trying to go. This mm-hmm. is the this is the purpose of me talking to you right now to get to this point. Yep. How do we get there? And, and you don't make it about the person, but it's that clear. And it's another line from. Um, the e-myth too, uh, where like your job is to paint that picture of perfection of mm-hmm. what the job done right looks like. Yeah. Right. And then it's been constantly coached to get it to that point.
1: Yeah. Um, but you mind if we go a little bit farther upstream so please. For, from your, from your side, cause you said that I can tell there's language around letting the letting go and the trust side. So from when you look to, Build trust with somebody. What do you need, right? So my side is we we often do an exercise around human beliefs, and what I found is people operate in certainty or uncertainty. They're two of the six core human beliefs, and I think it's having a conversation with somebody around where you operate. So if you you what you're doing right now, you know ninety nine point five percent of people on the planet haven't been able to do. With the number of shows you've done, the access to the network and the growth. So of course, there's going to be resistance towards letting this go, letting your schedule and your restaurant go, letting your hiring process go, whatever we're doing. But on your side, it's looking at, um, I share my fear with my team when I'm holding something tight of why I'm so resistant to let it go and how I need their support. So one of my favorite questions is, what does support for me look like for you? It's a question I ask all the time. What my team asks me when I'm letting something go what to support for me? So Sam will ask me, "What to support for me look like for you?" Because I'm scared. I don't. I don't want to hurt my clients. I don't want to mess up. It's been two hard years. But if we have that real conversation of where the fear motivator is, then then it that like kind of brings down the walls. It's not about what we're trying to do. They can book people, right? We can find somebody to book help book your guests. Um, but the fear side is the emotion.
0: Yeah. So okay. this, when I ask you, how do you build trust? Um, yeah. and this is something that I. I was hoping we would kind of drift in the direction of this idea of vulnerable leadership or vulner leadership by vulnerability. Is that how you Um, say
1: it? The phrase I made up was vulnerability-based leadership. (laughs) Vulnerability-based leadership. But the
0: the number one way to build trust is to, I think, first give trust. So you can't expect people to trust you unless you trust them. Right. But beyond that, it's becoming vulnerable. Yeah. And that's what you're getting into right now is getting real, getting vulnerable. And like, what do you need? What what are your fears? What are your emotions that are holding you back? And when you open up and you share your emotions, you share your fears, you share your concerns. It can be difficult because a lot of the times those fears and those concerns might offend somebody. Right because maybe you're saying I don't trust you or I don't think you're good enough for the job or I don't know if we can do this or you know what I mean or yeah. or, or or it just shows that you're weak like my fear um you know like growing up like I was my I was dyslexic you know yeah. uh, I became a commercial pilot I was a commercial pilot I was a colorblind ADHD dyslexic commercial pilot yeah. you don't think I was holding on to fears and worries that if people yeah. found that out I'd be done yeah. you know but I went through life with anxiety and I realized finally I had a re- I had to just Give that up, and I, once I was able to, to to get away from a career that relied on that, maybe you shouldn't be, you know, mm-hmm. dyslexic and all these things, and fly airplanes, and and I was able to admit that and like yeah. shed that weight, but put myself in a path that was right for me. Yeah, like it just it just it's so it's so relieving, and and also what happens when you do that?
1: Yeah, my side, like, and what you just shared there that I think is is and again, I said it earlier, but I want to read over you. It's beautiful. It's like our fears aren't about the other person. Yeah. Our trust issues aren't about them. They're about the story, you know, our whole side. So we hearing you say like some of the fears that you have for me, I, I would, if we brought somebody great to work around you, we're trying to share it. So like, I don't trust you. Yeah, I've been through experiences in my life that have wired me a certain way where I am, I I don't want to let go of the process because of trust of my experience, not about I don't trust you. It's that I don't trust myself to let go or I don't trust it'll work because this happened in the past or people judge this way. So my side is it's when I'm looking at, do I trust or not trust? I don't think it's, do I trust the other person? Got it. It's that, do I trust myself in order to, to let go? And that is uh, for me, it's a, it's a freeing side. And So what I share with my team and, and I don't expect them to do the same, but I, I don't want to overshare. I, I don't want to overshare vulnerability or over leverage vulnerability. Uh, but right now I'm in the middle of a divorce. Never thought I'd be here in my life. My team knows about it. So when it comes to trust, I need to ask them for more right now. But I've got to go to them in a way and say, here's, here's what I'm going through. Um, I have abandonment issues my whole life. Now I'm going through this with the person I care about most. And I've got kids and yeah. all this stuff. So my fears right now, if I'm holding on to things, are, are a factor of what I'm going through not a factor of our, our dynamic as a team. Got it. And you can see like, and sad, we had to say with the team last week, and there's no, there's no major piece, but am I showing up differently, acting differently? Do I have different stresses right now than what I have? Absolutely. But the vulnerability side to share with them of where, what are my experiences that are leading to my actions, leading to my feelings, and how do we work together to break it down? And you it's amazing to hear how, when I share that way, how others will open up where their foundation of trust is or their belief in trust is or the, what prevents them from trusting their boss, their friend, their partner. Um, and it's just conversations that aren't being had often, right? So what happens when you
0: lead from vulnerability, when you start with vulnerability, how does that change things going forward?
1: Yeah, I think from my side and, and, and this does come from Colin Collard was my coach for about six years. He's this incredible unicorn coach, very quiet, based out of uh, Calgary fly. mainly spends his time coaching entrepreneurs in the US. But what he showed, what he really worked with me on is in my early stages, I wasn't really comfortable in my own skin. Still working on that. I've made big strides, but still not based on my, my whole wiring. So when I wasn't comfortable in my own skin, I was trying to show up in a way that wasn't real or genuine. And because I can talk and because I can sell and because I've got some good experience, it, it was working. But if I wanted to take my business to the next level or work with a different person, I needed to be real. Because some you would see through that, right? You'd see through, you've interviewed enough people to say, this guy is BSing me or he's being real or he's trying to sound good for the audience. And what I learned through his coaching was if I could just be comfortable with me and who I am and show up real with my faults, with my weaknesses, with my strengths, with my success, all of me, then it created more connection, more result internally on my team, with my friends, and definitely with my clients. That's when the business went from good to, we don't know what to, to do with the work. Yeah. And
0: So it's getting honest with yourself. It's It's not about trying to hide your blemishes and weaknesses and fears. It's about getting them out there and being and accepting them for, you know, knowing who you are and what you are, accepting it and being, and instead, of, instead of hiding these things, communicating these things so you can complement yourself with the right people. Yeah. Right.
1: And I think it, like we talked earlier, the, the quote is like self-care, right? So do I, do I know who I am? Am I comfortable with? And I think that's a journey and I think it's fluid. So I might be fully grounded and comfortable in my skin and three months later I'm not for whatever reason experiences, but it's fluid. I'm just I'm just paying attention to... Where am I at, and what's a genuine version of me? Because um, I just think that the when you can show up that way, that's the foundation of all business relationships and personal relationships is trust. When I'm real, it'll create real connection with
0: what you. What is yeah? What is the what is at the core of all all business? Yeah, that was the question I asked. What's the answer? Would you say? I mean, I I say relationships. Yeah, right. But what's at the core of relationships? Right. Yeah, authenticity. Because you can't have a true genuine relationship with somebody unless you're being your true genuine self. Yeah. And like, that's the, that's the, the magic is when you are, that's what it, Like, that's why it's so important to, to define your culture and to know who you are. So you can attract those people to have a more genuine, authentic, close, close connection to you, your brand, and what you're trying to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm talking too much. This is, your no, you're topic. not a no, no, but this is, this is, <laughs> I think
1: it's, you know, for, for us or anybody listening, right? This is, I think it's the only conversation we have from ourselves: is, are we comfortable with how we're showing up? And, um, I go through the conversation with myself all the time, right? Like, are you being the best version of yourself? And it doesn't have to be yes all the time. There are times where I've got to gear back and say, take a breath. And there are times when it's like, okay, you're really on right now. Keep pushing. But, um, what I'm trying to do now is just be, be real. Um, and I wasn't trying to be fake before I was just trying to be liked. Yeah. And sometimes when wanting to be liked can break your authenticity and break uh, connection and trust.
0: You know, that I think resonates with me and what I was saying before with the network and just feeling like I need to be the gatekeeper and I need to protect all my listeners. My I like to say my my unique selling proposition is trust. Yep. That you listen to this podcast because you know that I'm out there hoofing it, getting this... Yep. this like I'm not the guy with the answers, I'm the guy who's going after the answers and I'm following the data, just like you would follow the data to serve your clients, right? And I'm afraid that if I just don't, if I don't keep an eye on that, then people who I welcome into my circle of trust are going to abuse it because everybody wants access to me to get access to my audience so they can sell shit. And I'm like just constantly putting a wall up. But I think it hurts me
1: yeah, and I but I I respect the the hurt right because that's the genuine side where hey I see I want to be on your podcast I want to talk to you I want to do this because I want to sell shit like those are the most annoying calls for for any restaurant operator or supplier me or you right I want access I there's some posts somebody put some posts up today that look genuine um, on one of the social channels but they're just trying to hijack the network right yeah. and I'm okay with that that's people's journeys but I think what you've done and what I've and this is what I've studied around. Uh, mastermind forum or community is once you can build the community or, and they're trusting you, then we we have the option whether it be your restaurant culture and team or whether it be with your network to build a standard of expectation. So I yeah. came out of entrepreneurs organization. So EO's got I've heard great things about you know, that organization. Like Five thousand members globally, and and it's a self. You pay a ton of money. You don't pay a lot, but you can with depending on your forum group. You pay a good chunk of money to be involved and it's self managed, but you cannot sell. You cannot, you have to speak from gestalt protocol. You yeah. have to, you don't show up, you get kicked out. Like, um, you know, if you're not real, you won't last in your forum. But they built the community, then they set the standard. And
0: that's the thing. I think the the, the trick is right now, in a, another lesson from the e myth, I'm going back to the e myth a lot today, but you can't have people dependent operations. You need to have system dependent operations right now restaurant unstoppable network is a people Mm -hmm. dependent operation that i'm the gatekeeper Mm -hmm. that i'm my my values are the filter through which i let people engage with each other whereas i need to create rules and say this is what we stand for have at it yep right Uh, but back to what you were saying like my whole thing is i want to be liked and i want to be liked by taking care of people and but uh, but you know, that's is I, what, what's really most important to me is that I'm like that yeah. people like me. Yeah. But you're saying you got to get rid of that and you just need to be comfortable in your own skin.
1: Yeah, it's easy to say, right? We all we all want to be liked. I think it's just finding out what are we giving away when we want to be liked by everybody. So
0: how does this relate to the restaurant industry?
1: Um, so if we want to look at um, a manager in a restaurant and an owner in a restaurant right now who wants to be who have a great staff but be liked by their staff. Yeah. And what happens when we want to be liked? We can often give up standards in order to avoid friction mm. so we're liked. So great from going back to the Radical Candor book, right? We might, we might hold back on feedback. Uh, we might do it ourselves because it's easier than giving it to somebody else. So how this can show up in a restaurant when we want to be liked is um, we have good relationships, but our standards or our results or our outcomes aren't exactly what we want or need. Got it.
0: Man, I'm loving this book. So, um or this conversation and I really love the book. So, back to you can't do it alone, uh focusing on people to scale, develop and lead your restaurant. Um what I mean, we talked you talk a lot about radical candor or mm-hmm. radical candor, you talk a lot about uh vulnerability early on in this book, time management and just living intentionally. Uh what was the purpose for you writing this book? Why did you want to write this book? What was your inspiration?
1: Yes, I think um Getting a chance to work with so many leaders and seeing uh, common patterns. Um, so I wasn't sure if we had a book and went to the publisher and, and had conversation. It wasn't really the intention to to write a book. It's I was able, as you are, to learn things, see things, and so interact with so many people where we can identify a pattern. And I, I'm watching people hurt because they can't get the awareness of the pattern. So not everybody can hire a coach. Not everyone wants a coach. But what could I take from the experiences I've had To put in a book to help more people in the industry. That was was the want. Um, And we didn't plan to sell a lot of books. It's not like we're trying to put it on bookstore shelves. It wasn't the intention. It was as we go out and speak and engage and work in rooms, Uh, some of them are one-offs, so we could leave them with something that then would ultimately allow them to hear an idea and then execute that idea. Um, So I think there's tons of content out there. So
0: what's the idea that you want people to hear and how are you helping them execute that, execute that idea?
1: Yeah. Um, and it goes back to, to the title, which came up, you know, in the f- very first couple stages of the manuscript. And that was the pattern is what's going to limit you in your restaurant. If we can't create clarity and inspire those around us to support us, we will burn out. We will bottleneck. We will limit our growth. Yeah. And it goes back to that. You can't do it alone theme. And I wanted people to get the opportunity to hear it in a way that hopefully it lands um, Cause my biggest pain was trying to do certain things my, yeah. on my own. And the biggest time when I've seen some of the most successful leaders in tears, in frustration, I've seen their business results decline. It's because they were trying to hold on. And if that, the right. want and the design of the book is we could get that message out there and then give it context and tools on how to get out of your own way, how to believe or trust more in your team, how to see the next stage of your operation meaning that um, I can own a single restaurant and go on vacation or I can own 10 and go to 15 if I get the right people. So yeah, the want was just to make sure people know um, that inside their businesses, they're not alone and that they don't need to take it all on.
0: Yeah, and this has been probably one of the biggest lessons for me in this podcast. One of my earliest aha moments is this mentality that you literally can't do it alone. And when studying interviewing some of these, you know, the, the the country's most successful restaurant groups yep. one of the things they realize is and it's so clear and obvious they know they can't do it alone yep. and they're not in the the business of cr- building restaurants they're in the build- this, they're in the business of building people who build restaurants yeah and and they and they're so good at seeing like jim collins says getting the right people on their bus and then getting them in the right seats yep. and and seeing when somebody like like your your mentor Kit who could, could see talent and and potential in people and then he would just, like you know glom onto them and put them in in a vertical and it says you're going to be good at this yeah. and it's it's those people who surround themselves and attract onto themselves people who are better at things than they are yep. and get out of the way 100%. and extend that trust those are the people that that scale and have eight. 10, 15 restaurants because they're just creating opportunity for other people. And they're saying, this is who we are. Do you align with this? Come join us. Right. Yeah. So anything from the book that we haven't discussed up to this point that you want to get out uh, before we kind of move on to my next question about this idea of where is the industry now and where do we need to be?
1: And I think the one thing I'd want to leave from the book, because it's really how we try to summarize everything is execution-focused strategy. So not just um, creating ideas or opportunities or having good conversation, but how do we actually create concepts, ideas, plans, visions, goals that's grounded in execution, meaning that we have a clear path of we know where we are, we know where we want to go, but what are the steps along the way that allow us to see progress and allow us to actually get there? So we all know that most New Year's resolutions are done you know, 21 days in, into the new year. The reason being is we know where we are and we know where we want to go, but we haven't put the, the progress markers in place. So the success measures in place. And what I want to help people do is take their ideas, but then help them execute. So I think there's a lot of people, speakers, authors, uh, coaches, consultants out there. So we can go share an idea, then we move on. I made a commitment in the work I do. Most of my clients I work with ongoing. So I, I am not committed to the result. They need to do it, but I am invested in the outcome in the results and what I wanted to help people because I see most people are well-intentioned but fall short of their goals because they're overcommitted and they actually haven't mapped out the full plan. So I think if we want to see success for your restaurant, we need to just slow down that little bit to figure out where are we, where do we want to go, but what does progress towards our goals look like? Um, who's involved and how do we recognize positive momentum, not the gap? Yeah, And that's-
0: so how do you do that?
1: Yeah, I think that's... And
0: you give us the answer in the book, but give us a teaser, one element of how to, to, to execute what you're saying, of actually following through and getting what we intend to do done.
1: Yeah. And I, so there's, there's two sides. One um, that I learned a long time ago is I don't believe in deadlines. One of the biggest things, we, we, we agree where we are and where we want to go. What I want to know working with the team is when have you blocked time to do the work? How do we give ourselves permission to work on what matters most? So the, what ends up happening is often in a restaurant, we end up investing in the guests and our people in ops. And we're trying to work on our new menu design, on our new concept, on our new lease at midnight. But how do we really proactively block not 60 hours a week? How do we block eight to 12 hours a week on the focuses or activities that move your business or operation in the direction you want? So the first step is we need to, to block time. The second step is just, it's the simplest piece, but it's missing most strategy meetings, weekly team meetings I get dialed into or sit in is we have great conversation. And then as soon as we're close to done, everybody packs up their stuff and runs. Every conversation is, you know, what was the intention and outcome from this meeting and who will do what by what? If we don't take 15 minutes to wrap a Zoom call, a conversation, a weekly team meeting, a partner discussion, a staff meeting, we miss that gap. We miss accountability and execution. Mm. And I'm not an accountability coach. But if we don't slow down to get clear on, on those actions, we end up coming back. We've all gone to the, a meeting the next week, had the same conversation. I'm like, are we actually having this conversation again? Cause nobody did shit with it. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to avoid. Um, the repetition of good intentions and no one's not executing because they don't want to. My, um, my job as a coach, 95% of the teams I start with are overcommitted. So I need to get them to commit to doing less. And then I need them to I'll give themselves permission to block time will focus on what matters most.
0: Got it. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to uh, kind of start wrapping up this conversation and talk about the future of the industry. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. And you've been hearing me talk about Diageo Bar Academy on my podcast for some time now. Diageo Bar Academy is a totally free resource for bartenders, bar managers, and those in the hospitality industry. Today, I want to tell you about some of these amazing new e-learning courses they have available right now. And again, a reminder, Diageo Bar Academy is always free with tons of resources that help you build your skills at your own pace and at any level. So back to these courses, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness Essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, too. You'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pint every Time. Learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant's more geared towards the booze, if you want to learn more about balancing flavors with spirits in food pairings, take the interactive course Spirits in Food Pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate the dining experience and help your check average. Diageo Bar Academy online courses offer real-life skills to help you grow in your career. They are always free, interactive, and each e-learning course takes less than 30 minutes and you receive a certificate upon completion, which you can view on your profile at any time. To learn more about what Diageo Bar Academy has to offer to grow your career, visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O Academy. Dot com. Find out why past guests like Tender Greens and Kava are using Play IQ for their accounts payable automation and expense management solution. Yes, you heard me right. Play IQ now offers a new spend management feature, which allows you to issue virtual or physical cards directly with Play IQ card. With Play IQ card, there is no credit card check, no minimum balance, and no Personal guarantee required. This feature is great for small restaurants who want to eliminate expense reporting for their employees but cannot get a corporate credit card easily. And I've got to let you know that with Play IQ card, you can get up to 1% cash back. That's pretty great. Now, I've told you what's new with PlateIQ, but you can't forget about all the other features you get with PlateIQ, like bill pay and incredible insights and approval of hierarchies. With bill pay, you can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to paying your bill, and this is all happening online, so no more paper checks. PlateIQ Bill Pay lets you see what's due when, and you can pay by check ACH. Or play IQ card. Also with Play IQ bill pay, you can say goodbye to escrow. That's right, no more flow. In other words, no money leaves your account until it's received by the vendor. We've got to talk about Play IQ insights too, because I mean, insights are so important. There's insights to allow you to compare, spend, a buy item, vendor, time, period, and location. Man, I love some insights. You can even set alerts. For example, if a price goes outside your agreed contract terms, boom, you get an alert. And then lastly, there's PlayIQ custom approval workflows. Only see the invoices you need to. No more duplications of efforts and no more hunting down approvers. To learn more, head to www.playiq.com unstoppable. And when you use that link, save 25% off implementation. All right, we are back, and I want to start talking about just generally speaking the industry, the state of the industry, where the industry is today. And again, our, our our mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So, I want to know what you think the industry needs in terms of transformation. So, where where do you think we are today? Do you think we're doing a good job? Do you think we could be doing better?
1: Yeah, and I think it's – my hope and my want is that we can always – our our industry continues to evolve and and we can do better insider operations for our people. Um, So I think we're doing a good job. I think if we look at the turnover rates of restaurants – um, meaning bankruptcy rates. So yeah, still 80%. I'm so happy
0: you're going here because I wrote down what needs to change. Create sustainable restaurants is what you yeah. said before. And you noticed that like you're selling all this product, you're selling all this product, yeah. and then they go out They're of business <laughs> and then somebody else goes into that space and you don't care because somebody else is going to go into that space, right? You're still yeah. going to have a client. So why is there such high turnover? What's going on?
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to, you know, we look at profitability rates across North America. We could look globally, but we would in Canada where we are now, the average restaurant, all national chains and independents lumped in makes less than 5% net profit. That's average. That's like, so we're, we're both, you know, smart people. We're going to put a million bucks in to, to create five cents of the dollar. We could literally go into something safe in the stock market and do better. So I think that what's starting is, is often the design, the initial design of the restaurant concept and the output or the profitability. Like we are for profit. What do you industry. mean by
0: design concept? You're talking about business model.
1: Um, so I'm talking business model, everything from restaurant to internal design to people to pricing to like the whole package. So like when we look at our entire concept, as you've said, it's not the four walls of the restaurant. It's every, it's the people inside. It's the guests inside. It's our partners inside. It's everybody involved. So I think one of the things we, we want to do is step back and look to design a sustainable, healthy model. And if you're happy with 3.5%, then like there, there's lots of businesses as long as we scale and have success there and pay ourselves properly. That could be a great business. But are we creating a sustainable business, um, whether you're currently operating or looking to open a restaurant intentionally?
0: So, what has to change about business as we know it today to make it sustainable?
1: yeah, and I think there's lots of avenues that we could go in you know we could look at menu pricing, we could look at you know what are um, really looking at our lease terms and and making sure a lot of people get a lot of restaurants get into a lease that's never going to allow them to be profitable. I think that 's a tactical conversation, probably not best. For here, but the one thing I was currently at a restaurant conference where Technomic presented, and they shared a stat that shook me to my core, that in North America, the job market currently has 8 to 9% job vacancy. So meaning 8 to 9% of jobs are currently open. They can't find people to fill. What Technomic shared is for the restaurant industry is it's actually, we have a 17% gap in North America right now. So the average restaurant is 17% short of the staff that they need to operate optimally. Like, that is catastrophic. Like, so, why is that? Why is, why is this the case where we're in the situation
0: where there's more restaurant opportunity than there is people willing to work?
1: Yeah. And I think we've got to look at a lot of different things from um, compensation, would be one, but I think it's one that we can solve. But I think what's happening right now is we're putting people into restaurants that are short, asking them to perform in an environment that's not sustainable. So we're asking a young host or a young server or a young cook to go into a restaurant where they're 20% short on staff and perform to make sure the restaurant works. And it's not sustainable. And, and the generations coming up right now don't want to or need to put themselves in those environments anymore because there's other job opportunities. So I think right now when we look to our peoples, are we putting in them in a position to be successful in their in their roles, to enjoy their roles? And again, if we look at 17%, we know that the bulk of that is coming from the back of house. You know, the front of house is still filling their pocket full of tips depending on the market and the back house, not as much. So it's looking at how do we create a proper experience? Uh, Patrick Luchoni says the question, what's your promise to your people?
0: So, so what's what should the promise to our people be?
1: I think it's something that we have to all each look at individually, but I think it's a commitment of sustainability, compensation, and culture. Uh, meaning that they can see themselves in the role and positive so, sustainability, commitment and culture. culture. Yeah. So Sustainability, uh, commitment and culture. So what's our sustainable so meaning? Is it a role that they can be in today? Can they progress? What are our promises or our commitments to our people? So what's the environment that they're going to work talking
0: in? about sustainability or, or commitment? Oh, sorry. Start from the top sustainability, commitment, culture. I want to make
1: sure. Yeah. So sustainability is for me looking at definition and it's just sustainability of the position of the role. So are they able to come to work?
0: Sustainability in their career, basically. In their career, yeah. So, position so the role. Or, yeah. or, 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 or a path of growth to different roles.
1: Yeah, and some people want to grow and some people don't. But do they see um, most of I get a. You I talk get,
0: about this in your book, which is really important. Um, I did a workshop with Nick Cirillo based out of Chicago, uh, Nick's Pizza, I'm not sure if you're yeah. familiar, Nick's University, uh, talking about creating tang- tangible paths of growth in your Business. So when if you get hired on day one, on day one you know exactly where you need to be. Say you want a five dollar raise in two years. Okay, here's exactly how you do it. Here's the path to growth. You need to show people there's a path. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. Um, Some and I haven't been. I didn't know Nick had that as part of his course. I've heard of the program, but we call it a path to leadership. Okay. Um, where we sit. Uh, when somebody comes in their interview, especially if they are looking to hire motivated people, especially ones that want to get promoted, or even ones that just want to get the raise, they will see in the interview process, here's where you're being hired for. And here's how you can get to a director job. Got it. If that's the right to whatever the size of the organization or GM, what that does is it allows them to see their opportunity, but it also holds the managers accountable to develop their people. So the real power of the path to leadership, I think, for Nick is it forces the managers to make sure if somebody wants a $5 raise, that we're supporting their development to be able to achieve it. Our job as leaders is to be at service of our people. Um, But I think creating a clarity of a path to leadership of how are you successful in your role? And some cooks want to stay cooks. Some servers want to stay servers, and that's okay. But how do they get compensated fairly? The next stage is if somebody wants to progress, do they know how? And what the projected timeline is. Yeah. Not, nothing's guaranteed, but it's very important to cover that.
0: So that's all encompassed under sustainability. Yes, and uh, commitment. What do you mean by commitment and culture?
1: Like, what's our commit? So first, is commitment. What's our commitment or a promise to our people? So, yeah. like, we've this exercise I did earlier this week with a client is we pulled down their their job ad offline and their five competitors' job ads, and we took the names off the job ads. I know lots of people have done that. We put them in the table and said, find yours." Right, the commitment is. It's a fun place to work. Great culture. All the stuff. No, it's not right now. It's really hard. We're short-staffed, and you got to work really well. But we're going to compensate you really well. Thank
0: you for pointing that out. Because I think people are like, "Oh, we have culture. Yeah, this is this is we wrote this down five years ago. That's our culture. Yeah. No, that's not your culture. Yeah. Your culture is what's happening today. Yeah. It, this moment, this second, the next second, the second after that. Real time. What is reality? Yeah. That's your culture. It's not what you say you are. It's what you do every day. Yeah.
1: Culture is fluid. Um, in my site, culture is fluid. And if somebody has their culture statement or core values written down or not, you can see them, right? So so, can-
0: yeah. So and we haven't talked about culture yet, but I, I kind of – do you want to just round that off? I feel like – Yes, your people- commitments, our
1: commitments are commitments to our people and cultures. What's the environment you're going to come into every day? How do we create consistency? So right now, like COVID took away consistency and control. A lot of us are going into restaurants. So when you're walking in the four walls of that restaurant every day, what's the environment? Cause leadership has to create the environment, not the staff, but what are they going to walk into? What's the environment? We can be 20% short staffed and still have a good time at work. Or it can be 20% short staffed and get yelled at all day. What's your, what's your culture commitment?
0: Yeah. So again, the whole, where we're, we're, we're down in this, this rabbit hole, the original question was what needs to change in order to transform our industry? Um, the, we're about the gap of opportunity and the people to fill that opportunity and why it's not being filled. You said, because we're not, there's no reason to work in this industry right now as far as we're not, there's not the, it's not the safest place to work. It's not the best work to do. There's other opportunities and people, there's not a lot of security in this yep. industry. So if we're, you, you talk about commitment and what, what is your commitment to your people? You said, you know, fun, safe, fair wage, sure how do you, you can't wring water from a rock. What's the expression? You can't, you um, know, squeeze
1: blood from a stone. Is that blood something from that's a stone? Yeah. Know, so main, like, main event, yeah.
0: So how are we supposed to, to, to create opportunity and sustainability and fair wage and pay people where we literally have no money mm-hmm. to do it. Cause we only have 5% profit.
1: Yeah. And I think that comes from a co-creation um, position. So I think before what would happen is owners would decide what the environment, what the culture looks like for their people. I think if we really want to create change, it's starting to have this dialogue with our people. So, what, what do they want and need? How do you create um, the promise? So, what's my promise to my employee? What's my employee's promise to me? What do we want culture to be? We need to drive that together. Um, and, co- what, and a lot of what we do in our work is co-create a concept so it's not being told or download it. It's actually, we're- we're it's ours. To, it's ours, it's service strategy, it's menu creation, it's the experience. Whatever we're looking at, it's our culture, it's our our recognition process. But how do we put something in place where people trust it again? And I think what we need to do, the big problem and gap in the market is we need to create trust in our industry again, by example, because people lost, the, the media villainized us through the pandemic of being unsafe. So I think we need to show people that they can trust us again, and we need to be clear as if you're going to come work for us, what is the experience we need to create for our guests so we can charge the menu prices we need to so we can be profitable and all of us can continue to earn?
0: I think that last part right there is charge the prices we need to is the yep. big thing that's holding this industry back yep. from from progressing. Yep. How do we get to the point where consumers are going to be... I mean, we're going to have to increase... Rates by about ten percent yep i mean we 're doing all we can right now yep. right to 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 make our five percent there 's not much more we can do, yeah so the only way to get
1: back another ten points is to we have to look at so it 's menu pricing, but it 's I think what is in front of menu pricing is the experience, so the yeah. experience gives us permission to charge the rate like i 've been to some ridiculously expensive restaurants that I didn't notice the price because of the experience I've been to, there's a dumpling place across the street, which I don't e- I have no idea what their prices is, but it's remarkable. I yep. took my clients there. It's just, but our, the, that's where the staff and the culture comes into play is if you're delivering an average or poor experience and charging $30 for a pizza, then we have a gap. Yeah. So the side is how do how does our guests know that they can get a consistent, relentless positive experience inside our restaurant that happens to be around yeah. so
0: if most at this point most what you're saying is most of the variables are
1: fixed we don't have much wiggle
0: room other than we still can do a better job creating a be, a, a better experience for the guests and that is the one dynamic you know fluid variable yeah. that we can do better to ask for more yeah uh, but do you think it goes deeper than that is is it go beyond our industry? Is it more of a cultural issue in America, North America, Canada? Like, is there just a, a, a messed up perception of the value of food?
1: Yeah, I think you know, we've made it transactional. Um, so if you know, food is transactional, then price becomes a, core, a main consideration. Um, but I think if, we, if you talk to people and you look at all the studies, what did people and technomic, because I met with them recently, I've got some great stats, is why, are, why do people want to go back to restaurants? And it's not for the food because third-party delivery allowed us to get every single yeah. option that we want to our doorstep and in pretty good quality now since yeah. they've made advancements of packaging. But what we want is that community or communal experience, you know, together. As you said, you've driven nine hours here, nine hours back so we can connect. But that's, you know, that's the piece. If, if food is transactional, then we have a major, major issue. Um, Unless you're Domino's, and I think that's
0: yeah, yeah, and I don't want. To, do you want to continue your train of thought? No, to go cut ahead. you short. Um, and I think that's the key issue is that it had like we have conditioned the consumer to think a burger should be five dollars. Yeah, you know, and it's 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 this idea of centralizing the food system of making it about convenience and about yeah. value. We we basically conditioned the consumer to think that that's a fair a fair deal. So when you charge sure. twenty bucks for a burger, yeah it's like culture shock. It's literally, how do you quadruple the cost of something yeah. and say it's the same?
1: And, and I think that's, and, and that's where we look at big, like the machines, right? So the, the major players we are not to bring up their names now that created the, you know, value pricing menus and all, all of these you know, low cost options. But the client that I'm meeting with later, they have 150 uh, quick service pizza locations. And what our statement and our, our goal has been for the last couple of years. And I mentioned is, in the book. Um, Dominic Pramucci, he's he would be in there a couple times owning no. Pizza Nova. Nova, yeah. Um, so Pizza Nova, their their goal, their mission is to dominate the premium pizza category, and we have a whole reason why that is echoed to every franchisee, every staff member, every call center agent, because their price points are significantly higher than what might per- be perceived as the price positioned pizza locations. So what we've had to do is they stand on a pillar of quality, they've incredible food quality. Uh, we've developed and and relentlessly pursued a a service experience, even through the driver at your door. That'll be different from your third party. But they are able to take that price position and see significant growth in locations, see significant growth in sales, same-source sales every year that's outpacing their competitors. But it's a choice. Like, we can play the game of price, but you got to be big. You know, I'd be careful. Price is dangerous. I learned, like, that's my experience working for for Anheuser-Busch was- sorry go ahead i had lots of clients selling tons of tons of my beer at a discount weren't making any money busy yeah. going broke don't so, be busy going broke
0: so you're saying you say when you say price what you're saying is you can if you're if you have a hundred locations you can come down on price because you're doing the volume yeah. that you can make up for it but i mean that, that's good for that one company yeah. but what does that do for the industry now you have mom and pops yeah. trying to compete at that same price point but they don't have the volume to compete
1: yeah. And so I think if you're a mom and pop, I think of you know, where we are in, in Toronto here, we can walk down the street and, and run into a bunch of independent coffee shops. Yeah. So and I'm watching these independent coffee shops based on the art of it charge more than Starbucks. So here you're going to go up the street and pay $7 for a Starbucks now. And, right. and I went into a, a, one of these locations recently in the mom and pop shop, you know, probably 750000 in annual sales, you know, really is a, it's a pleasure business. It's they're not looking to scale it. Um, but they're charging eight twenty-five dollars or something for a coffee based on the experience and, and, as you said earlier, the community that they've created and the feel and the space that they've created. And I admire that. Um, you know, there is, I think we have to look at, again, by design and with intention, why does your community need your restaurant, whatever it is, quick service, full service, coffee shop, need you to exist? Like, what it, what it, why are you there? Because we don't need more coffee shops. We don't need more burgers. We don't need more restaurants. In every city in North America, restaurants, hundreds of restaurants, every major city, hundreds of restaurants will go bankrupt this year. Why do they need you to exist? And how do we design, like, get very clear what you're going to offer, what the space, how does it make people feel, what the guests experience, how do your staff interact with your guests to make them feel? And how do we package that together to make it, again, a sustainable business? Yeah. And the challenge is if we play the game of someone's going discount, so we need to go discount, it's very concerning because you got to risk to... Again, I've seen, I, it breaks my heart to see people who have chased price mm-hmm. had, had their customers got a good product. There was nothing left on the bone for them. And in the three to five year period, they go bankrupt.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing I want people to understand is like, listen, like this should be an equation where you need to figure out exactly what it's going to take for you to pay your people, to pay yourself, to, to pay your bills. And yeah. it should be re- reverse engineered and that should be the price, Yeah, you know, and, um, And it's me when people just try to compete with price with their competitors because it it paints the industry into a corner where we're not profitable. Um, On the flip side, too, this is something I want to talk about. You talk about um, the experience, and I agree that that's one of the fluid variables that we can control, and there's a lot of ways to influence experience. I think a lot of restaurants in the industry, a lot of the restaurants that are going to be closing in the next year – We're trying to create experience through other variables that aren't the human factors, Sure, but like shock and awe, um, beautiful spaces, design, architecture, uh, food that is just exorbitant. You know, so I'm going to make a statement. A lot of people are going to like shake their head at me. You're familiar with the independent restaurant coalition. Yep. ICO. Wait, uh, right? ICO, independent rest, R I R, C. It's Lexia. The R- the IRC. Yep. Um, they're lobbying to refund, right? They, they were lobbying to ref to to you know um, to, uh, to replenish the loans. Sorry, right? the, the, yep. the support, the funds. Um, it didn't go through, and now they're I, a lot of these restaurants mm-hmm. that are going to be going out of business. I wonder if it's like what what was your business model yeah you know yeah is this really a a byproduct of the pandemic or was this where we were headed yeah you know what's going through your mind as i'm saying this
1: yeah it's one thing that we said that that COVID didn't create these issues it just magnified it Um, like we didn't we had staffing issues before we had inflation issues before we had service issues we had competition issues um it just magnified it and one thing that's not often talked about is most most businesses that go bankrupt and this is obvious but the we don't talk about it so they go cash flow broke. So a lot of restaurants are busy and like you're actually in and on a Friday night drive past it the next week and it's closed like hey it was full it's because we were running out of cash. My biggest fear for the industry is thousands of operators were cash flow broke during the pandemic but we have this want to hold on and the reality is they're out of cash now. They'll make yeah. it through the summer season next next January to March will be um, traumatic for our industry based on the closures. It's just because we're holding on to a model where we can pay suppliers, pay our staff, but there's actually nothing left for the partners or the owners. And that just, that runs out of time. And that, that's my biggest fear uh, for the weeks and, and months ahead.
0: So I think one of the things I'm trying to communicate is that we, a lot of these restaurants, the majority of these restaurants, these new restaurants you see opening um, the, the restaurants that, James Beard and Food and Wine and Michelin Stars and, like, all these restaurants that are high touch, high expense, high attention to detail, those are unsustainable businesses. Yep. But we glorify these businesses. We celebrate these businesses. We champion these businesses. Everybody who opens a restaurant wants to be one of these businesses. What the fuck, dude? Yep. You know what yep. I mean? Like we're, we, we are glorifying and promoting and holding these unsustainable businesses on a pedestal and telling the industry that this is success. Yep. And I've interviewed a lot of people yep. who were those people that they, I was told to go talk to because they're successful. And I'm sitting it's across the table from them and they're white in the face because they don't know how they're going to pay the fucking rent this week because yep. they don't have the cash flow and I'm learning about success from them. Yeah, you know, and I can see it. Like that—that's the reality. That's the culture
1: of our industry. Yeah, what was the number one restaurant in the world for a few years? I forget the name of it, and it oh. just switched to a burger location, right? So it's fine in,
0: in, De- in Denmark. Yeah, um, yeah. Renee Brown or Renee—I can't think of his, the name of the restaurant, yeah. but I know who you're talking. But about. But you
1: talk about not sustainable, right? Like those businesses, and we can all look at them for. But
0: that's, they're all chasing experience, though, and that's why I'm talking yep. about this. But experience yep. can be expensive.
1: And that and that's when we step back to say, you know, what business are we really in? Do we want to? I'm working with a boutique hotel right now that's will be the first boutique hotel in Canada to get the Five Diamond award, and that that is a pursuit, but it it is a passion project. It is not yeah. sustainable. Um, looking, but what I want to look at is who is the operator in Houston, Texas? Um, Bobby Hugel brands. I don't even know, you know Bobby Hugel. He owns five or six Anvil, all these bars down there. I don't know yes. Bobby so there's a guy like you look, if I wanted to interview somebody was and I have a
0: guest on my show,
1: <laughs> I, I haven't seen him in years, but I, I, he spoke at one of our conferences years ago and, and like, there is somebody who's building remarkable experience based businesses that are sustainable and profitable. He is like, when looking, when I look at um, heroes in the industry, kid, Andrew, who was my first partner had six restaurants that made massive profit. We're talking 25% plus net. Like he just. Bricks, back then it was a cash business, bricks of cash we were trying to find to put places um, from all of his businesses. Um, But I think it's who are we looking up to as success? Um, What does success look like and who are we looking to replicate? So there's these celebrity brands, which are great, or these experience locations or Michelin stars. Um, but what I want to know is who's the scrappy, you know, burger spot that's making thirteen point five percent and the owners and, working forty hours a week. And
0: that's how I have evolved, and how the, I think Restaurant Impossible podcast has evolved. Because when I first started, I was looking for the people that these magazines, these publications, Food and Wine, James and Beard, who are they glorifying? They must be the ones that I have to go after. Um, but I I started to realize that I think a, a lot of the issue with this industry is ego, and people aren't changing fiscal responsibility they're changing they're they're chasing status yep and a lot of the i feel like a lot of these restaurants that are on that list of you know 100 restaurants that are going to close in my city yeah i there's a part of me that's just like this needs to happen yeah to make so so that they learn if they want to stay in this industry that it can't be about status. It can't be, about. you have to be fiscally responsible. Yep. You have to have a steady business model and what they've been doing is broken. I think this is, this, this almost needs to happen. Yeah. And if it, I, and I think a lot of people are like, where the fuck is your heart, Eric? How can you say this about your, the, the, the these restaurant owners are losing their businesses. Well, yeah,
1: but also a lot of those the, the hard thing for me is I'll get pulled into those business by a investor partner to say come work with us because the investor partner wants their money back like those yeah. and I I think those the operators they're artists in my mind so we're creating art and then yeah. there's managers and entrepreneurs so like like somebody can create art and some will be successful creating art but for most that are in that game know you've got a three to five year lifespan and then you got a Reno so if yeah. you don't have three five million dollars to Reno. You're the concept, or you just shut the lease down and 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 walk. But if someone's trying to run an an artist based business, you know, for a decade, you're probably going to run it into the ground. Yeah. So I think now it's like for us, it's looking at the industry it's, um, you know, who are who are the real heroes? Who are the real examples of sustainability? Of um, I look at how do you make a business scalable, sustainable, and saleable? That's the model I want to talk. Whether whether you ever want to sell or not, we have to have those intentions. So if we can look at those restaurant operators, that's who I, I, sometimes when I meet with somebody like, yeah, we did 18% net last year. And one of my clients on on some pretty good revenue, I'm like, okay, how do we do it? Right? It happens with intention. And we also, like for the people that are struggling with menu pricing, we did a, a video series recently on menu pricing mindset. So what's really in the way for operators with respect to time we can, like it's a free program we just have on our social platforms. But it's often, it's it's emotional, not logical decisions that are preventing us from charging what we want to be profitable.
0: But it's one of those things where you have to charge what you need to, 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 to pay your people to execute and deliver that experience. Yeah. So it's like, you got to pay, you got to charge for it first because you need those resources yeah. to pay the people to execute on that standard of service. And it doesn't have to be marble floors and huge skylines and beautiful architecture. It can be training your people to give an F and to care into, into make, making human real human connections. You can, you can have a restaurant in the dungiest of dive bars with amazing people and you're going to get people to come back. And I think that that's, it's, it's, it's transforming people. Yeah. In in growing people, is the secret, and also th- that's that's a double edged sword in a good way, because when you grow people, when you transform people, they're happy. Yeah, they're seen, they're valued. You can't do it alone. Yeah, and it comes full circle, man. I think yeah. that the answer to a lot of our our problems is just understanding that this is a group effort. Yep. Um, and I think we could probably keep on talking, but we are over two hours. It goes by fast, doesn't it? That's
1: amazing, man. Yeah,
0: I loved it. Yeah, man. Yeah. You were great, and you're talking about all these people that you admire, that you look up to, these these operators that are doing it right, um, and you study them. Who are these people? Who do you think I should get on the show? Who's somebody you respect and admire or a group of people you respect and admire and, and think I should get on the show?
1: Yeah, there's yeah, there's a few, and I'm just thinking about just based on our last conversation. There's... Um, I think one brand that'll become very present in the U.S. I S I haven't worked with them for a few years, but still consider many of them dear friends is the Joey restaurant group. Um, They're, they're they're called their people culture. I've had a chance to work with a lot of businesses. Again, I haven't worked with them in a handful of years, but it's just a remarkable culture. They're expanding. They've got some locations opening in um, Dallas. I believe Dallas and Houston, a um, couple in LA, uh, Miami's, I believe is coming up, um, but just an incredible culture-based business, large scale. Um, I think they're absolutely incredible. Um, is there somebody at the Joy restaurant group that really stands out? Yeah. Like from my side, I think Rupert Martin, um, I think Tyson Rideout is just, Tyson is an inspiration of... Um, since I've started my career, somebody I had a chance to work with when we launched bar metrics here, but I think Tyson is one of the most remarkable leaders in our industry based on how much he effing cares about people and how he's willing to fight the status quo of the industry and also internally to do right for the future of his restaurant group. And Tyson runs uh, the local brand, um, which is one of the Jolie's concepts. Um, But he is just, he's a remarkable human. Um, He's a ton of fun. And I just, he's one of the people who taught me that you can be real. He's just a real guy. And, yeah. you know, him and some of the other people in, in that group are, are incredible. Um, and again, the gentleman I'm meeting in this room, I'd love to connect you with Dominic Permucci. Um, fam They're the largest family-owned quick service operation, I believe, in the country. Um,
0: how do you spell that last name? Um,
1: I would wish I could tell you, but I probably messed it up. In, P. Yeah, Pramucci. I'll give it to you. It's right on the back of this book if I could read it. Um sitting in front of me. But uh Dominic from Pizza Nova, like they're a family owned business, you know, going through 150 locations on their way to 200. Uh, but one thing I love about Dominic, he's and I've seen him fight this fight for six years now. He said it's never about the growth or 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 the location, it's about the people. And he will not grow uh, without the right foundation of setting up the franchisee for success hiring the right team for success. Uh, His business is not easy. It's scrappy. It's a fight. It's hard. Um, But just that family side, you know, his dad started the business and him driving it forward. Um, I get as much meeting with him than, or possibly more meeting with him than he gets from me.
0: Yeah, man, I love this. This has been a great conversation. Uh, Joey Restaurant Group. Uh, Was there Rupert? And Tyson, you want me to talk to those two? And then uh, Dominic from Pizza Nova. Look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And if we've enjoyed today's conversation and we want to learn more about you, we want to get your book. Maybe we want to work with you. What's the best way to connect?
1: Yeah, to get the book, you can go to Amazon um, and you'll find the book. You can't do it alone there. Uh, We will very shortly. We'll offer this up to you. We have had somebody um, uh, complete the audio book for us. One thing we're doing with the audio book is... was that? I know. Sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the drive up. Um, and the audio book, this is against our publishers' want. We're going to give away for free. Um, I wanted to get to people, help people. And I think that might connect more with the managers in the industry. But uh, we put all the, the money up to, to get it to audio. Uh, it's ready to go. We're just waiting on the distribution.
0: Would you be willing to do a live Q&A on the book?
1: 100%. Yep. Yeah. Let's, uh, yep. I'm going to put a little teaser in here now. Um, I
0: would like to get that scheduled, uh, over Zoom or something. So if you guys are listening okay. to this, uh, stay tuned for the closing thoughts because hopefully by then we can get something on the calendar to do like a remote follow up QA. Um, and maybe no, I won't say that yet. Maybe I'll hold something off for a t- <laughs> There might be another teaser, but, uh, how can we connect?
1: Um, mattroff.com. Uh, you'll find all the information about our coaching services. Um, the, that we do a lot of times it's often starting with the client around a strategy conversation um, I also we have a irresistible offer um, we put our money where our mouth is anybody looking to move their team forward we'll come and work with you if you're not satisfied I'll actually pay you for the time
0: wow yep. that's huge so, Matt thank you so much my man this was a lot of fun uh, I say it every time I have to say it there is no questioning you are unstoppable thanks man cheers, cheers. Thank you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Matt Rolfe. And Matt, man, I really did enjoy your book. It kind of came into my life at a good time. I've been doing a lot of self-reflecting lately, this idea of what is your core focus? What is it that you do uniquely that not everyone else can do? And where does it make sense to put most of your energy? Where are your strengths? What like, what does that look like? And for me, I think my core focus here at Restaurant Unstoppable, Restaurant Unstoppable's core focus is deep dive conversations with amazing restaurateurs in the tools and services and experts and authors they're recommending and just learning and being curious and getting after the truth and just letting that curiosity just drive the engine and when i think about what lights me up what makes me spring out of bed it's that idea of just going just being on the road i love i don't know why but i just love that i love just going and sometimes i feel like computers and monitors and social media and I just don't want it in my life. I just want to surround myself with technicians and managers who are better at that stuff than I am. So that's kind of where I'm at with the network right now is I need to extend some trust. And I don't need to be the gatekeeper. I don't need to be the person that has their hand on everything. You, you, you got to let go. You got to believe in the vision, the values, the mission, build systems around that and put amazing people into it. And and really just be willing to embrace trust i mean i've said it a couple times but trust right so that's kind of where i'm at right now and i don't really know what the future of restaurant unstoppable network looks like but i do think it needs to evolve beyond me so uh, I would love to have you guys be a part of that. And I think one of the ways you can be a part of it is by letting me know what you want out of the network. And and if you have ideas of how we can create this community of, of restaurant professionals coming together to share knowledge and to support each other and to grow and to connect with and explore the tools and services my guests are recommending, I'm all ears. Let me know, please. Uh, it's time to evolve. It's time to grow. And uh, I'm open to suggestions. So uh, if you want to support this mission, here's how you can do it. You can use our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can join restaurant unstoppable network and you can share this podcast with everybody and anybody you know all right guys thank you so much for sticking around this long until next time peace out